Yeah. I'm going to do something different um, to the clap, I think, today. Oh, I'm going to yeah. try something else. Um, we're going to count. We're going to go three, two, one, and then we're going to say, diamonds are forever, forever, forever. <laughs> this, is, this is clearly for the outtakes, isn't it? This is... No, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I held back from um, including Mark's fart in our last podcast. I was oh very tempted. <laughs> He's turning into a bit of an he, old old geezer, isn't he? He thought he'd get away with it, didn't he? He thought, oh, but no one's going to hear me. Oh, I'll just... <laughs> He's all just, all just the mic. That's hilarious. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, right then, peeps. Um, shall we get going? Yeah. Um, right, just stop recording. Right, there we go. It's not like I only recorded about seven episodes of this thing last week, um, and I'm out of practice. Um, okay, right, ready? Oh yep. God. Three, two, one. Diamonds, Diamonds are forever, 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 forever. When do we stop? <laughs> You didn't say where to stop. I think I can sink it from here. Eighty percent of the world's diamonds come from mines in South Africa. So Donald think someone stopped fighting. What we need to know is who the stockpilers are. Curious how everyone who touches those diamonds seems to die. A dentist is dead in South Africa. That little old lady in Amsterdam. Shady got his last night. They missed me once, and you're next. We gotta get those diamonds out of here and fast. Where are they? They say Willard White hasn't set foot out of there in three years, and no one has seen me. No one. This is not the real White House. He's not the president. Why don't we just go and see him? I do so enjoy our little visits, Mr. Bond. However potentially painful they may be. Who are you? One chance. Where can I find him? Let's get down to business. Whatever's happening, Mr. Bond, has started. You just killed James Bond. Welcome to the Tailoring Talk Show with me, your host, Roberto Rivilla. I am a bespoke tailor, menswear designer, and founder of Roberto Rivilla London Suit and Shirt Makers. This is the podcast where you drop in for the threads, but often leave with something quite unexpected. If you haven't already, please support the show by subscribing and leaving us a rating and a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It is time for part seven of the Tailoring Talk James Bondathon, where we follow the James Bond film series in order, ticking off each movie as each month goes by. 
My guests and I will be deep diving into each film, covering everything from our overall review to the clothes, gadgets, cast, behind-the-scenes stories, and our favourite moments. Step into the tailoring talk time machine with me as we head to 1971. Sean Connery is back as our favourite 00 agent, ushering the series into a new decade and preparing us for the arrival of a certain Mr. Moore. As ever, I am joined by our resident poker star. If MI6 had put him up against Le Chiffre in Casino Royale, Le Chiffre would be crying more than blood after our man takes him to the cleaners. It's Philip Rahman. Philip, how are you? Bobby, how you doing? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, I'm okay, thanks. I just realised I've been introducing you with this kind of poker slant for the last uh, few months, and anyone who has actually checked you out on LinkedIn and seen that you're a mortgage advisor would be very confused. Well, um, well, it's a business platform, and my company, you know, everything I put on there has to be representative of the company I work for. But on my personal Instagram, then there will be more poker elements around. So the company on your LinkedIn profile is potentially just a sinister front for your the nefarious deeds that you finance through your poker plane. Well, I, I, I wouldn't like to say, but yeah, that uh, could be possible. This sounds very <laughs> familiar to a plot of a film. <laughs> Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, speaking of which, yet again, we are delighted and privileged to be joined by my friend from the Play Paul's Turn podcast. That's the Play Paul's Turn podcast. The coolest dark saber wielding IT teacher around. His voice is so sexy, it makes birds suddenly appear every time he is near. It's John Evans. John, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I, I, I live in dread of your intros whenever I come on the podcast. <laughs> oh, you love them, really. Do you ever play them back, Becca? No. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to put a little. I'm going to put a compilation of them together at the end of end of uh, end of the Moore era. I think. I think I'll have enough by then. Um, okay, so on with the show. Um, Diamonds are forever. It was my first time ever. Um, Philip, I think it was your second time. John, once again, eyes popping out of head. Um, he's had a quite a few of those moments recently, actually, because we've been chatting on the Discord for Play Paul's Turn, and John has discovered that I basically grew up ignoring just about every classic sci-fi film ever, unless it had the word Star Wars in front of it. <laughs> Um, John, was it? This wasn't your first time. Diamonds are forever, was it? No, I think actually, this was my second time too. So I'm not that. Oh. My eyes weren't popping that much, but um, I think I know why it was my second time. I, I vaguely remember it being on one bank holiday when I was maybe about five or six years old. And we used to, um, all the families used to gather at my grandmother's massive house down in Bromley. That sounds really ostentatious, but I mean, they probably bought it for three quid in the 1950s or something. Um, but that's where we all used to gather on bank holiday weekends. And so me and my cousins would be playing. And, uh, and then my uncles inevitably, who probably would have all been younger than we are now in their late twenties or whatever they would have all been wanting to watch the James Bond film. So I kind of vaguely remember Diamonds Are Forever being on in the background um, in the, I mean, this would probably have been in 82, 83, uh, running on ITV or whatever it was called back then. But I obviously did not watch it at all. 
Um, Do you think it was um, family viewing material? Having seen it last night, uh, (laughs) no. I think it was a young adolescent going through puberty material, you know, especially Plenty O'Toole. We'll talk about her later. Um, So, uh, yeah, there we go. But it was released in December 1971, runtime of 120 minutes, budget of 7.2 million, took... 116 million at the box office, uh, which Cubby Broccoli at the time said it broke all records. Um, so <clears throat> I think a lot of that box office was probably down to Sean Connery's return. Um, the film is based on Ian Fleming's 1956 novel of the same name and is the second of four Bond films directed by Guy Hamilton. He returned as the producers wanted to get a bit more of the feel of Goldfinger. Uh, The story has Bond impersonating a diamond smuggler to infiltrate a smuggling ring, and he soon uncovers a plot by his old enemy, Blofeld, who wants to use diamonds to build a space-based laser weapon. Bond has to battle his enemy for one last time to stop the smuggling and stall Blofeld's plan of destroying Washington, D.C., and extorting the world with nuclear supremacy. Um, so, uh, I think we might just kind of try and run through the film in some sort of order. I'm going to do the spoiler warning, um, traditionally late, but if you haven't seen Diamonds Are Forever, it's only been out for 51 years now, uh, get yourself to a cinema because actually it's the 60th anniversary of Bond, so it is actually showing in some places. Um, more so up north than it is down south for some reason. I have no idea why. It has um, been playing locally where I live. Ah, okay. Well, there you go. Also out in the sticks where John lives. Um, and uh, go see it and then come back and join us because we will be spoiling the living daylights out of this film. I still haven't. Sorry. John's got his head in his hands and Phil is actually his usual call. No, he's shaking his head. Yeah, there we go. Uh, sorry about that. Anyway, um, we're still quite far from Living Daylights as well, actually. We are. Like, very far away from Living Daylights. Um, so, yeah. So, first reactions to the opening sequence. Uh, Phil. Well, we got an introduction to... Um, Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid, who can only be described as Dumb and Dumber, um, <laughs> they. I, it seemed to me that this particular film tried its best to attract more of an American audience. They thought to themselves, well, there's enough people in England watching it, so let's focus our attention on making it something that the Americans can relate to. So they managed to get these two actors from somewhere, and I think it was Mr. Witt that has the long hair at the back. Yeah. Yeah, and it just looks like some old-style geography teacher or history teacher that's just managed to find a way, his way into being a villain in this film. I mean, John, you're a teacher. I mean, do you relate to any of these teachers in your school? Um. <laughs> Well, <laughs> any teachers in your school, John, that look like paedophiles? <laughs> let's just let's just get it out there. I don't think I'm going to answer that question. This this episode um, is is definitely getting an explicit rating tick when it gets uploaded. Yeah. I've, I've already, I mean, <laughs> you know, 
I said, to be fair, I said geography teacher, not pedophile. So Potter Smith. You say potato, I say potato. Potter Smith, who plays, I've got to get the right way around here now. Um, I think he's Mr. Wint, isn't he? Long haired one. Yeah, well, I, d- I, yeah. I, wanna c- I actually that- want to come to those two in a little bit because that's not actually okay. the opening sequence. Because the opening sequence, we get the gun barrel and then we get a series of seemingly across the globe where, where Bond is looking for Blofeld. And so he's, he's strangling just about everybody he can get his hands on from, well, it looks like Japan first, then he goes to Cairo. Um, and then he ends up, I don't know where he ends up, but then he strangles this poor woman on the beach with, with her bikini top. Um, and did you pause? We... Did you pause it then? Did you pause it? I actually did pause it. Do you want to see? Uh, oh, yeah, it's not very clear, but I think you can see a nipple there. Which is quite scandalous for a Bond film, really, isn't it? There's a lot of those moments in this but film. Did, didn't you say oh. in Doctor No that uh, Asilla Andrus was butt naked in that film, though? I can't remember because we, John and I, were meant to go back uh, purely for research purposes, of course, <laughs> and uh, see if that was uh, indeed Asilla Andrus in her full glory. But uh, I don't know. I think I think a scene was cut from Doctor No where there was nudity. I think it, if you look at the deleted scenes, mm-hmm. it might show that. Um, I, I found this intro really weird. Didn't you find it really weird? It, I don't think Connery was involved in this intro. I get the feeling they dubbed his dialogue in over some actor strangling people around the globe, and the dubbing was very bad. If you notice, really, if you look, if you watch it, the um, a lot of the speech does not match any of the lips in any of the character. It was just very weird. It almost felt like a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, really, really strange. Large part of this film felt like parody to me. And I don't want to. I don't want to be too down on it. Um, so I'm glad that I saw it yesterday, and I've had a chance to sleep on it. And then I also listened to the Really Double O Seven podcast this morning for their their review of when they saw this film on the big screen. I think it was back in uh, May. Um, <clears throat> so I could actually just kind of get some other podcasters' kind of views on it and Bond fans' view- views on it as well. So I don't want to be too hard on this film, but. Yeah, that opening was was it was quite jarring, and it was almost like they were trying too hard to make the statement that it's Sean Connery, he's back in the role. Forget about that last film. The producers definitely didn't want us remembering that on Her Majesty's Secret Service ever existed. But then at the same time, you kind of get the feeling he's after Blofeld because because of what happened in at the end of the last film with. Um, Tracy (laughs) dying and being killed off Um, that he's out for revenge because I've been saying to you guys for weeks now that I was really looking forward to seeing this and Phil just basically kept trying to tee me up for disappointment because I've been listening to the title song and you know, just the first opening strands. I mean, it's one of my favourite Bond songs of all time. I think it's absolutely amazing. But the strands at the beginning just sort of lend themselves. They have so much emotion to them. And then when that sort of, you know, when the, the kind of instruments all come in and the song really kind of gets off, you can you can kind of almost imagine Diamonds Are Forever. If you hadn't seen the film like me and you let your imagination run wild, you could really use that song to kind of form your own script about a big revenge thriller where he goes after Blofeld for, 
you know, what he did, killing his wife and all the rest of it. And obviously that's not what we got here and the jam was definitely swiftly taken out of my donut. I mean, I, but then we cut... I just want to say about, sorry, the, so, so to say about the song. I mean, lyri- lyrically, the songs were written by Don Black and I've always liked the way Don Black writes songs because he, t- he takes a lot of his inspiration from Jimmy Webb and Jimmy Webb and uh, always writes songs where the first line of the song you know immediately what the song's about. You don't have to guess. And Diamonds Are Forever is very much like that. The way he kind of like starts off the song, you know immediately that you're in a Bond theme and it's really iconic. And the music going around the lyrics work really, really well. And Don Black's brilliant at that. I've always been a fan of his uh, songwriting. So Don Black um, is in conversation with John Barry and says... um, you know, how the hell are we going to approach this? Because Diamonds Are Forever isn't exactly the most kind of sexy sounding sort of title to a film. And John Barry says, well, you know, if you treat a diamond, if you take the attitude that the diamond is a metaphor for the male appendage, and then that's where lyrics like, you know, touch it, kiss it, then caress it came about. Um, And reading that little bit of behind the scenes trivia... (laughs) John Barry said to him it puts a whole new meaning on the song and it and it changes your approach to how you write it it definitely changed my approach to how I listen to it now I don't think I ever want to listen to it ever again yeah <laughs> um, I'm gonna have to listen to it again now yeah so now you listen to the lyrics yes. with that in in your head and yeah it puts a completely different complexion on on the song altogether um actually I, I Think you were right, actually, Phil. It, it, the kid and thingy majiggy, kid and play. <laughs> what, what are their names? Dumb kid and, and dumber. Kid and play. Kid and wind. Dumb and dumber. Um, they were the opening bit, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. In my yeah, notes, right. um, I've got um, Mr. Wind and Mr. Kid are awesome. <laughs> yeah. In my well, first, played... like... <laughs> so, um, so the so they're played respectively, uh, respectively by um, oh god, I keep thinking Brian Crispin Glover. Glover, but he's he's Brian obviously Glover. Crispin Glover's dad, Brian Glover, Crispin Glover's and dad Putter from Smith. Back to the Future, yeah, and uh, and uh, Putter Smith, uh, who's not an actor, he was a jazz musician, the uh, one of the producers, I think, um, had picked a jazz musician who was playing at a performance of Thelonious Monk um, but then that guy didn't want to do it and then Potter Smith was also playing and so they basically pulled him out of nowhere because he had such an interesting look and it was quite these two are quite a bold choice uh, in terms of character because they're both gay they're in a homosexual relationship um, which I kind of wasn't expecting for a film that was made in 1971. So I think it was actually quite forward thinking for its time. Because when they held hands after killing the doctor and sort of skip, uh, blowing up the helicopter and skipping off across the beach, I was like, why are they holding hands? These two are complete freaks and weirdos. Carolina's like, they're gay, right? And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> but I see right. a couple of references to it, though. I didn't pick up I mean, on them gay. Oh, I did, because. <laughs> Because I mean, to to jump right to the final scene where they're fighting Bond with the with the with the um the pudding, he gets very upset when um Mr. Wink gets knocked over the side of the boat. He gets very upset as if his 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 lover has been killed and gets very angry. And there's a couple of other references to it, I think, on on the plane or something when they're flying as well. Um, 
But the, the, I mean, the, I'm sure you've re- you've read this fact as well, Bobby. The, the funniest fact about them is the um, they convince uh, Sean Connery that they were actually open, openly homosexual, and throughout the filming they were, you know, very camp. And then um, a, very, a few years later, whilst on an airline flight, um, uh, Bruce Glover was actually flirting with a female flight attendant, and you'd hear a, a, a Scottish accented voice in the background saying, "You son of a bitch!" <laughs> As Glover turned around and saw yeah. that it was Sean Connery on the other side of the plane, when obviously the penny had dropped, and he realised that they were winding him up on the on the film set. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. Because <laughs> yeah, Brian, I think Brian Glover said that when he was told that they were in a relationship. He took one look at Putter Smith and thought to himself, "Absolutely no freaking way." But I wouldn't, <laughs> even if I was, I wouldn't. Uh, and then, but and the beauty then, of it though, it's a well, charming relationship, I think. So, so what he did, because obviously he's a professional, so what he did is like, yeah. right, okay, I need to kind of develop the character for this. So, so the more he looked at Putter, he thought to himself, "Okay, this guy looks odd and is, you know, kind of in an interesting but weird way." And uh, actually, uh, he so, so he sort of started to see Putter as more his toy, like his object of pleasure. Um, and then that's what he went with to get into character for, for the role, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. I don't know if poor Putter Smith knew any of this until they were interviewed <laughs> years later for it. But, but to me, the, uh, you know, to me, the fact that in 71, the only people that were seen on screen that were gay were really, really camp, and they had the kind of oh, you know, hello, sailor, all that kind of stuff, and and you would around this time there would be like comedy shows like Morecambe and Wise where the two characters would sleep together. You know that um, Ernie and Bert would would sleep in the same bed and stuff like that at Sesame Street, and it was never um, open that anyone was gay. And and in a lot of the in Morecambe and Wise's case, and and. Um, but in Ernie's case, they weren't gay. So in this, to see two characters that turned out to be gay when they weren't sort of acting camp, I think is quite forward thinking. So fair play to the producers on, on, for that. On, yeah. on the flip side, obviously, if you are gay and you watch this film in 1971 and discover that the only people representing your um, leaning are the weird, creepy villains, you might also not be the happiest. So you've got to take that into but account we, as well. But John, we've had to deal with that for years in the sense that, you know, we've had to deal with the fact that many Asian people on screen have True. always been yeah. villains or they've been sort of yeah. business people or something like that. It's just what we have to deal with. And we just have to yeah. deal with the kind of work that's available to us. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair play. Exactly. Yeah. So um, so then we get the gun barrel sequence and then we get Connery tearing his way through a bunch of really poor looking. I mean, they look like the live version of the dummies from Team America World Police, to be fair, especially the one in Cairo, um, who does not look like an Egyptian at all. He just looks like some sort of Bengali stand in that they found and said, here, put a fez on You're Egyptian. Um, uh, he eventually finds his way to this beach where there's this lady sunbathing and and he starts questioning her where's blowfeld and then whips her bikini top off and starts strangling her with it so it is quite brutal and then he does get to where blowfeld is apparently holed up and then and then we see uh what's his name is it charles gray yeah um charles gray is back um which is what confused John when we were watching You Only Live Twice, because John remembered Charles Gray from this film as Blofeld, yeah. and that's why you thought he was Blofeld in You Only Live Twice initially. So they basically rehired the actor and cast him as Blofeld in this. 
So there's a series of uh, masks, and I wasn't sure what was going on. I thought Blofeld was undergoing plastic surgery to maybe explain why he looked different to Telly Savalos or something. But that's not the case. He's basically, in inverted commas, he's cloning himself and using his henchmen and changing them to his likeness. Um, But Bond thinks that he's found him in the surgeon's lab or whatever it is which basically looks like a mud spa and um promptly offs him and i think it's at this bit where john sent me a picture of his scribbled note saying is this surreal or something didn't you yeah i just the whole thing is just it's like a pantomime isn't it it's like some like what is going on um and and, and you talk about the uh, i don't know about the helicopter blowing up the the special effects in this are absolutely oh my- the worst thing I've seen in years. And that's Awful. because uh, the poor special effects people um, had their budgets massively slashed so they could pay Sean Connery, and I kid you not, 1971, $1.235 million. It was a, to get, to it get was him back. a record-breaking deal. Um, so $1.235 million in 1971. Times that by 1300 and that's how much that money can buy now. Think about that for a second. That is a lot of money. Huge. How much is that then? Is that like 130, no, 130 million? 135 million. It's like for one actor, for one film. It's just, yeah, it boggles the mind. And and at the time, Um, he was was living in um, the UK, but the Labour government at the time had increased the income tax for people earning over a certain amount to 70%, and it massively hurt his tax bill. And it was around this time he moved to Monaco. <laughs> oh, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So he pushed for the film because of that to be made in America. And also Cubby Broccoli had a relationship with Howard Hughes. And so there was the, the, the opportunity to use Las Vegas as a massive set. So as a favor to Cubby, Howard Hughes basically shut Las Vegas down for five nights so that they could film there, which is quite something quite a big thing yeah but vegas themselves when they were initially asked about it they thought that bonds being filmed in vegas was actually a good thing because obviously by this time the franchise was i mean it was probably about the biggest thing of the 60s right but the um the producers have been searching for a new actor to replace lazenby so lazenby was originally signed to a seven he had the option for seven films or they signed him for seven films but after the first one and all the problems um, they didn't want him back, and he, at the advice of his agent, didn't go back. Um, so the whole of 1970 was spent trying to find a new actor. And it's amazing when you look at the list of people that they considered. They they consi- they were looking for an American initially, so they went to Clint Eastwood, they went to Burt Reynolds, they went to Adam West. Oh, um, can you imagine? Can you imagine yeah, if he'd been Bond? He'd have been the perfect pseudo-American step in to Roger Moore if Roger know, Moore had followed straight after. Yeah. Yeah. Um Did they go to Tom Selleck? Then, no, they didn't go to Tom Selleck. Oh, right. Um yeah, I mean Tom Selleck, there's a story there with Indiana Jones because he passed that over, didn't he? And yeah. it went to Harrison Ford. Yeah. Um but uh yeah, so and then they still couldn't get Roger Moore because Roger Moore was tied up for another season of I think it was the saint. either the Saint or the, the Saint. It was the Saint. Or may, might have been the Persuaders, I think Persuaders actually. I think it was the Persuaders, John, yeah. Uh, yeah. I used to watch that when I was a kid, though. So did I. Yeah, and the Saint as well. 
I used to watch the reruns when I was Tony little. Tony Curtis was the other one, wasn't he? It was Tony Curtis. He was. Yeah, yeah, yeah Tony Curtis was in The Persuaders, yeah. So they settled... So the producers decided that they were going to go for someone who was little known. Or, and so they went for John Gavin, who played Caesar in Stanley Kubrick's um, Spartacus. And in January 1971, now you've got to consider the film was released in December. So this puts the time frame into sharp focus and probably explains a lot of what we see on film in the preceding two, in the following two hours. But um, they signed his contract in January 1971. Now, and they thought it was a done deal. Now, at the same time, at United Artists, uh, who were financing all of this, a guy called David Picker was in deep conversation with Sean Connery without telling the producers. And he was manoeuvring to get Connery back because they'd seen what had happened with On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I think it was the lowest grossing Bond film to date. They didn't want to repeat that mistake. So they wanted the uh, director of Goldfinger back and they wanted Connery back as well. And so they're the ones that offered him the $1.25 million deal and they promised him that it would be a shorter shooting schedule. And they promised him that they would get filming moved to America so it would solve his income tax problem. And also um, that they would get him access to all the golf courses out there. Because that's pretty much what Connery wanted to do, was just did basically play also, golf in his spare time. Did they also promise him that he could date both the female leads at the same time? I don't know. He dated Lana Wood, didn't he? He dated both of them. Oh, he did? Oh, wow. Because I thought Jill St. John was with Robert Wagner. Eventually, yeah. But um, at one point, he was seeing both of them during the filming. Oh, wow. What a cat. So so then all of this came out in the wash, and the producers had to let Gavin go. But they'd signed him to a pay-or-play deal, so they were able to just terminate it, and he left the project. Uh, He actually became ambassador to Mexico. He actually got paid the full amount for that, despite not being Bond as well. They actually paid him off? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, Gavin was paid the full salary. Wow. Um, The interview I saw with the producers, they didn't say that. Well, apparently Albert um, Broccoli insisted that Gavin be paid the full salary, hmm. for, which wow. is a contract called. But, but that I mean, you know, I, I, I could be wrong on that. I've read this somewhere. It could be it could be fake, fake, uh, false information. Yeah, um, I will try. But, I mean, you can see that. where the costs are starting to spiral. I mean, Connery yeah. didn't want. There's there's a great John. If you've got the iTunes version of this, these uh, yes, I've got. I've seen the deleted scenes. Yeah, have you seen the interview with him, the BBC archive interview? No, I haven't watched that one yet. No. It's worth a watch. It's really interesting. I'll see if when I edit this po- this episode together, I can actually put it in because it's only five minutes so that you lot can listen to it. But um, Connery basically, uh, the interviewer says, you didn't want to come back as Bond, did you? I mean, it was well known by then that he didn't want to do it ever again. And, you know, Connery says, yeah, I didn't. You know, I didn't, I don't need the money. Um you know, I don't need hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever. Um, but the reason that he came back was on the promise that the salary he got paid, he at the time was start, start was trying to start a new charity in Scotland. And uh, it was the Scottish International Education Trust. Um, and with $1.25 million, it meant that he, well, he felt that that much investment would mean that the trust could not fail. So he donated every single penny of it to that. 
by this time he'd he'd obviously invested the money he'd earned from the bon- other Bond films, and he was doing other movies as well. He'd invested wisely. He was involved with property. Um, he uh, co-owned a business that sold second-hand cars in the East End of London. Uh, he was on the board of a bank in Scotland as well. Um, and this is at the ripe old age of 41. So he's still really young when he makes this film. And he's doing really well. And money's just not really... You know, he was putting any money he earned thereafter into other philanthropic stuff and trying to get Scottish independence and build Hadrian's Wall again. Um so um so yeah there we go but then they eventually moved filming back to the UK for a portion of it because there was another pine, tax that loophole Pinewood. probably, probably that uh, Pinewood, Pinewood Studios. Studios yeah yeah um because there was a tax loophole where the profits of the film they got a tax rebate which would cover the salary that they were paying him so there was a lot of Clever. this nonsense going on and the amount of time that took they couldn't start fil- they didn't start filming until April finished filming around i think september so this was only it was like five six months yeah five months shoot schedule for an international project which probably explains why the special effects are so rubbish and you know a lot of the other stuff in the film as well so there we go but are we happy that conry came back for this one i think so i mean what's the alternative you know, there was this this other guy, but what was the alternative, really? Yeah, I mean, well, we didn't Mark. get a choice, but, I mean, if you could wave, wave a magic wand, Phil, if you could have had anyone for this film, would it have been Connery, or would, have you, gone for, would you have gone for someone else? I think at the time I probably would have gone for Con- Connery, yeah. Do you know, Bob, Bobby, um, Phil, Michael Gambon was actually asked to be Bond at one point. He was. Did not know that. And he, he, he turned... He turned it down, but apparently because he said he was in terrible shape and had tits like a woman. Played a gamble for saying that about himself. They they also asked Ranulph Fines as well. Oh wow, the explorer. <laughs> yeah, that would be weird. Yeah, I mean he is part of a very famous acting family, but he's not known for being the actor of the family. Uh, I think the most creative thing that he's done professionally is uh, he was a poet as well, right? I mean, I say was, yeah. he's still alive today. Um, but yeah, explorer, poet, writer. I, I've never seen actor on his CV. Um, I think Joseph and Rafe are his cousins, aren't they? They're related somehow, anyway. Yeah. Um, anyway, moving on. Spent a lot of time on Connery. But anyway, Connery's back. Um, he doesn't look like a 41-year-old, by the way, guys. He looks older than us. And we're slightly yeah. older than 41. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just to fact check, um, uh, uh, John Gavin did get the full salary despite being the only Bond that was never a Bond. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so, yeah, while we're talking about the cast, well, let's talk about the cast then. So we didn't get much Lois Maxwell because she was had some sort of dispute with the producers and so on. But in the end, they cut her back into the film and gave her that very short short scene when Bond, you know, goes off on the hovercraft to go to Amsterdam. Hovercraft. Yeah, hovercraft. So the hovercraft. It was so, I love. It was so. I've got to say, I love the 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 way it harked back to the fact that it had the intercity logo on it. It just reminded yeah. me of my childhood. It's like, oh, you know, that's exactly the same. <laughs> I I remember going on hovercraft once or twice, and it was terrible because you never see out the windows because they're just all splashed, and you, the whole thing was, you know, 
I'm trying to think. Bizarre think, when you do it. I think I went on a hovercraft once uh, when we went yeah. to France. I think what I think on one occasion we did go on a hovercraft, but I was so young I just don't remember what it was like. Noisy and noisy and splashy and not much fun really. Yeah. The only time I've seen a hovercraft before this film was in Jackie Chan's. I think it's Rumble in the Bronx or one of the other ones that he did. Police, probably police story, something like that, isn't it? It wasn't police story. It was no. one of the ones that was uh, like a co-American straight. You know the ones that he did in like the kind of early nineties, I think. Mm-hmm. It was Rumble in the Bronx, and there was another one, um, Who Am I or something. Uh, but anyway, um, but yeah, so... probably Lois Maxwell. She she was concerned about these little shorts. Um, sort of sequences she had to film for Bond were interrupting her other career. And it's like, oh, I've got to go back and film sort of 10 minutes for a Bond film. And she'd actually dyed her hair a different colour for another another thing she was in, which is why she's in that sort of um, port security gar- garb with a hat on to hide her hair. But I yeah. think it was really nice to see her in the film, her and Desmond the wedding. She's not in it for very long, but no, the she's not, time no. she is in it, she's absolutely wonderful as always. She, she is, but... She asks Bond for a, for a diamond ring, which treats it just seems a little bit too soon after his wife has just died. If you ask me, yeah, <laughs> Money Penny would do that, do you know? But his That's wife, the sort of but, thing she'd say, bit insensitive. Again, you've got to re- <laughs> you've got to remember, <laughs> on Her Majesty's Secret Service doesn't exist in this timeline. Okay, basically, as we then find out as the film progresses, because we're still waiting for mention of what happened to Tracy. And yeah. there is absolutely sweet FA Nothing. about it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's crazy. Uh, we get our first... Ma- so, so let's go back to this mud bathing uh, scene where we think that Blofeld has been killed. Because I thought... I mean, I was like, all bets are off in this bloody thing. He's already strangled someone with a bikini top to get information out of her. Then we've got this crazy bastard that is changing people's faces to look like his own. Bond is now... Um, shoved Blofeld into a vat of boiling whatever it was. Mashed potatoes, apparently. It was mashed potatoes, yeah. Apparently that set absolutely reeked um, (laughs) because obviously the potatoes went off. (laughs) (laughs) I feel sorry for the actor that got, you know, got the... Slid in. ton of it, yeah. You could make a very very strenuous Back to the Future link with, you know, crisping, glover, biff, Horse manure, potatoes yeah. on. Yeah, it doesn't work though. Um, but yeah, I mean that sequence. I mean Carolina laughed her head off when when the guy goes inside Bond's jacket and the mouse trap in the yeah. holster or whatever. How and then... prepared could you be for that? It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's such it? a surreal film. He had a few gadgets in this film, didn't he? Yeah, he but did. there was no Q branch sequence, which was so disappointing. There was. There, there was. Very briefly, there was over the phone. Over the. Yeah, exactly. But it wasn't a proper him getting the mousetrap no. thing and getting the thing. Listen carefully, Bond. Stop playing with that. Yeah, yeah the repel gun as well, because we've got a yeah. repel gun for the first time since Goldfinger. Um, so. Um, so, yeah, it, it was just absolutely bonkers. I don't know. If this now takes the no, I I think that psychedelic scene in On Her Majesty's Secret Service is still the most bonkers scene so far in these films. Battle the Dancing Gypsy Girls. Dancing Gypsy Girls is my is now become my most favourite um, sequence of any Bond film ever. 
<laughs> it's absolutely freaking nuts. <laughs> I'm going to have to go and watch that film again as a palate cleanser for this one. Um, so, uh, but then we get title sequence um, with the cat, which is the title sequence that my wife has paid the most attention to. It is largely um, agreed that it's one of the worst title sequences ever. It's quite lazy, but Carolina thinks it's the best title sequence ever of any movie ever made in motion picture history. Because because of of the cat. cat. Yeah. Okay. What what did we think? Look, the song is amazing, right? Less scantily clad women. There was there was far less of the scantily clad women, which is a shame. They only they only had one. They only had one. They only used one model for it. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's all budget. It's all budget. It's still bad for the cat being being sort of trolled out again. They they threw him around in the first film and. And he got terrified by bombs and things falling in, in that sort of volcanic set. Um, and then they they threw the cat again in this film, didn't they? He threw the cat at the wrong Blofeld. So no wonder yeah. he's looking. He's looking like he's looking decidedly annoyed in the in the title sequence. The cat gets kicked as well does, in yeah. in Blofeld's apartment or wherever later yeah. in the film. Uh, yeah, Poor cat. Yeah, awful. Well, we don't know if because remember they got through two cats in the last one, uh, in the one before. Uh, it was You Only Live Twice because one of the cats escaped at the beginning of filming in the volcano set. They never found it, did they? You're right, yeah. Never found, exactly. So they had to replace him with another cat. So God knows how many cats they went through in this one. Um, But then after that title sequence, um, you know, Jill St. John is introduced to us as... um, What's her face? Tiffany Chase. I don't remember her name. Tiffany Chase, Tiffany Chase, yeah. And she is the first American Bond girl. Um, so good on her. The the thing is, is now I will forever be comparing every Bond girl post on Her Majesty's to Diana Rigg, and she was rubbish in comparison. So, but I think what did we think of um, Jill St. John? I think Phil? I think that what they were looking for was Jane Fonda because Jane Fonda at the time was probably the biggest actress at the time. She was probably the biggest sex symbol of 1971 she'd just she'd done deliverance she'd done clue she'd done they shoot horses don't they but at the time jane fonda was an activist for the vietnam against the vietnam war and other and she was an activist for many other things including women's rights so she wasn't really up for making films around this period she was even actually um they wanted her for the lead in the film the exorcist as well um, but she just wasn't making films around this period. But it seemed to me that for this American audience, they wanted someone that could take on that Jane Fonda vibe. And I think she, from, she was a very cheap version of Jane Fonda, but she was a very pretty girl. But the way she was introduced came across as a very sort of assured, strong woman. And unfortunately, she didn't continue that way, which is a shame. No, I mean, I think your dog agrees, Bobby. I love that dog so much, but I want to kill her so much at the same time. I don't. Um, th- I don't think. I don't think Jane Fonda. I don't think Jane Fonda was ever considered. J- Jill St. John, her agent, basically got her the role because uh, they were they were going for someone else, and then her agent was friends with someone, and then suggested her, and and then they put her in. But, you know, I think she did well with what she was given. Yeah. 
but she started off like you're absolutely right phil she started off as being quite sassy and quite a strong female lead and then by the end of the film i mean she was i mean she 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 was basically the blueprint for a lot of the nonsense that went on in gremlins 2 the new batch i'm thinking particularly (laughs) when she tries to fire she tries to fire the machine gun on the all rig platform and then sort of falls off the edge with it that was john that's quite a a leap from bond to to spielberg there goodness me yeah well you know me i'll leap all over the place all day long this is what people come Um, to Raquel welsh jane fonda and faye dunway were all were all considered so they did they did approach jane fonda for the film oh they did yeah um, I'm not sure how Faye Dunaway would have done because she's quite a different vibe. She's, she's more of a um, villain, Faye Dunaway. Yeah, she's. I mean, she's more she the bad she a girl. Superman villain. She was in, no, she was in was Supergirl. Faye... She was in Supergirl. That's right, yeah. Supergirl. Worst yeah. film. One of the worst films of all time. I no. love that film. Yes, I love that film. Awful. Watch it again no. and then tell me. Okay. I well. don't. Every time I watch it, I'm just mesmerised by Helen Slater. So <laughs> I think oh, it's awesome. So I had massive crush on her after that film I, for many years. Me too. Years. Yeah, that wasn't totally. enough to keep me. I tried literally. I literally tried walking past factories with radiation in the hope of getting superpowers. <laughs> she fell in love with me. That's how. <laughs> that's how in love I'm with. Her. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, sorry, guys. Oh, John. Oh, that's an admission, that's isn't so it? Sweet. Me. Um, so let's move through the cast then, because yeah. uh, going through the film in order has just gone out the window. Um, so then our other Bond girl, because obviously Jill St. John is, is really the kind of um, arch enemy, right? Because remember, we've got this three Bond girl sort of formula. Then we've got um, Lana Wood, um, Natalie Wood's sister, um, who plays Plenty O'Toole. Oh, I don't, God, th- this is where Bond a lot of the jokes... You know, a lot of the the jokes didn't land for me as well in this film. I mean, I think they just about got away with it just because it was Connery. But I just don't think the jokes landed. I mean, when she says, hi, I'm plenty in the casino, and he says... Of course you are. What does he say? Sure you... Of course you are. Yeah. I think they should have just left it at that. There was no need for the, um, you know, oh, named after your father then. I was like, I mean, what does that mean? Um... But yeah, anyway, but I mean, she apparently modelled her performance on a combination of Minnie Mouse and someone else. I can't remember who Betty the other Boop. one was. I think so, yeah. But it just, again, it was so grating, you know. Um, even some of the lines they give Jill, Jill St. John. You killed James Bond? You can't kill James Bond. Now we've got to get out of here before they come how, after us. How, how does... How does um... A fairly minor um, jewel thief or jewel dealer know anything about the great famous James Bond? They're, they're in different circles, aren't they? Man. Surely. I mean, right from the start, even I mean, even when James Bond was saying, you know, should we even be getting involved in, you know, diamond smuggling? This is kind of outside yeah. of her, so she wouldn't know who James Bond is or Commander Bond. Also, yeah. if if you're known as the great James Bond then surely you're the worst spy in the world because everyone knows who you are. Exactly. This has always confused me. Yeah. yeah. Always. But I, I would also We've, say about, you know, the whole thing about Plenty, go back to Plenty O'Toole, the, her role in it was in some way, to me, it felt like they were trying to sell Las Vegas to the rest of the world. It's like you could show up, act like you sort of know what you're doing on a craps table, and <laughs> and then... You know, you could leave with a bit of money. So it teaches people how to play craps, 
and basically lets you know that there'll be scantily clad girls that be willing to have sex with you if you might if you tip them enough. Well, yeah. Playboy models because she modelled for Playboy, didn't she as well? Oh, did she? Yeah, yeah. But she, um, she was well endowed. Look, you know, I'm just going to say it. We're all hot blooded males here. I mean, it was really distracting, and I can't imagine what it would have been like for the audience of 1971. They or, must have been completely your family and cousins. You know, in your in your family house on that Sunday afternoon when you went to watch it together. All you know. that, yeah. Well, I don't know because I was playing with cars, uh, matchbox cars, and I was uh, I was waiting for. Oh no! Actually, my cousin had. We're going off on a tangent. Get ready. Hold on. Put your seatbelts on. Um, my cousin had um, Star Scream. I had I had Star Scream as well. Yeah. Because and he was the coolest one F- because F-16. you got two transformers in one because he opened up yeah. the cassette at the front and he had the little cassette that transformed into the little bird transformer, Decepticon. Yeah. And so um I remember most of that afternoon was spent fighting over who was going to play with Scar- Starscream next because I didn't no one wanted Optimus Prime because it was boring. Well, and, Starscream you know, was a plane, not cassette player. Who was the one that had the cassette at the front? He was, I've got it, I own it. He was the leader, um, I forget the guy's name, but he was the main, wasn't in Megatron. the cartoons eventually he turned into a gun, but initially he was a, he was a cassette player with a oh. panther and a, he had a panther and like a vulture thing that came out as tapes, didn't you? Do you remember? We are going on a tangent um, here now, aren't we? Oh, yeah, we are. We need to sort this out. Um, my dad, I had my appendix out when I was seven, and while my cousin was getting the really cool Transformers, my dad bought me Inferno. Oh. <laughs> it was Soundwave. Sound it was wave. the fire engine. It was absolute shit. Like, I mean, if you're going to get me... Like, your son could have died on the operating table and you buy him Inferno. I mean, come on, Dad. Seriously. Oh, it's a bit like, like when quite. your dad bought you that shit car that time. Oh, yeah, uh, from, Phil, from your eyes. The Citroen, from your, for the your Citroen eyes 2CV only. or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes. Rather than getting you the Lamborghini yeah. or whatever that it was. was the that Lotus. was the car that he got me. And that's probably another reason why, you know, Bond kind of... <laughs> I was scarred from Bond because I thought, is this the kind of this kind of a memory of a shit toy that my dad got me? You know. <laughs> so John's John's got this really uh, cheeky look on his face. He's, he's going to get into, something. He's gone into yeah. He's gone into eight-year-old John. That all look. He's going to go and get something to show us. Oh, um, he might have found the car that he talked about a few episodes ago. Actually, I wonder if he's retrieved it. This is going to be a treat. What have you got? You're gonna have to edit this bit out, but oh, 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 oh! No! Oh no, he's got! Oh my god, yeah, he's, he's got, got the transformer toy that my cousin had. Oh my god, thirty-eight it's years a ghetto ago, blaster, isn't it? Yeah. Right. It's, you can hear it, the sound of it. Wasn't he I've called Ghetto Blaster? I don't know where the box is. It's probably worth more of the box, but see, look, his legs come down here. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Called yeah, yeah. He was called Soundwave. He was like Soundwave. again one of the worst, worst ones to get because like. How does a cassette player get involved in the action, you know? Yeah. But he was doing things like going into um, military bases and people, you know, soldiers were picking him up to play him and he'd get moved into the secret area where all the, the plans were and things. And, um, yeah, but the best bit was it actually the cassette came out and turned into a... I thought, well, I've got the cat somewhere else, but this is like a a bird that opens up as well. Yeah. Maybe, 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 maybe he infiltrates nuclear bases with the codes... To have false codes so that the nuclear weapons don't go off. <laughs> well, there's another cassette that came with him, which was the, the marching band cassette that you could put in here as well. Yes. 
<laughs> so trying to get yeah. back to Bond here. Yeah, but, uh... exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, Starscream was a plane. I remember that being like a 16 or a 15 Tomahawk plane. Um, because I was well into my Transformers. I think Bobby's going to get his Transformer now. No, he's it? gone to he's gone no, to the dog to sleep. I, do, do you know what? I I do own. I went to get Emily out of the room because she's barking like a stupid idiot. Um, the uh, I do own a Transformer, and I'm not ashamed to say it that I I bought it about six or seven years ago. That's the one. Yeah, that's the one. Why did I think that was cool? That one's rubbish. <laughs> Why did I think it was so cool? Well, what options did we have, Bobby? The grass is always greener. Yeah, this is true. Um, I well, own, I own a, I don't know. It's like a one, one to eight or one to six scale uh, bumblebee. Oh no! From the new always Transformers. Bumblebee, the Porsche. No, Bumblebee from the new. Oh, one. the VW. Yeah. The, well, no, he's he's he starts as a VW, doesn't he? But then he changes yeah. into a uh, Camaro. Mustang. Yeah. Is it yellow um... Camaro? What was the um? What was the Porsche called? It's got a now. I'll go down the rabbit hole. Transformers. Jazz. 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 That's it. I always wanted jazz. Always. We've gone down this rabbit hole because it's more interesting. Transformers are more interesting than diamonds are forever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Anyone who's listening, if I've just oh sorry, God. I've just killed Phil and John. Um, <laughs> Yes. Uh, anyway, I think that's it. But this has been the worst episode no. of Tailoring Talk ever. <laughs> <laughs> we we, we oh, hit Lord. the bottom finally. Seven films in. Um, let's let, let's 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 talk about Tiffany, Tiffany Case's terrible fingerprint fingerprint machine, please. I want to talk about how bad it was. Uh, you take the lead, John. Go for it. Because because we we got to that stage where we were talking about Tiffany Case, where we we digressed to. Lana Wood and Plenty O'Toole and um, so basic, the gratuitous um, yeah. boobs on the, on the on the crap table scene. And but let's talk about Tiffany's uh, fingerprint gadget. Cause, yeah, because because Bond had to go as Peter Franks, didn't he, to sort of make the first the meet cute with him and um, Tiffany Case. That's and you're right. saying she's so, quite sassy and kind of confident to that in that first scene. But it's just the whole the whole scene where she gets his fingerprints from his glass of um, scotch, where he, she served him and. It just—I've never laughed so much in a Bond film as when she opened the cupboard. <laughs> and like she's got these two sort of like overhead projector screens, and, <laughs> and and she somehow managed to have the fingerprint on data, uh, and she takes a perfect fingerprint from the from the the glass, and they, they they're next to each other, and they look exactly the same, and it's just the whole thing made me laugh so it's much. The way that it's she just, just sort of like there's no cross scanning or anything. She just kind no. of looks at them, well, and they then look with like the sort they of satis- same. Well, they do, but still, you know, I mean, you could do some sort of overlaying or whatever. Yeah. Um, but again, I'm I'm just guessing everything in this film was driven by budget considerations. Um, uh, you know, because then you come on to a lot of the explosion special effects and things later on, and they literally so look bad. like they were done by a four-year-old child. Um, sorry, Phil, you wanted to say something. No, I was just going to um, go back to um, you know, the, the element about Tiffany Chase in terms of, um, you know, how she was going to basically get the diamonds from where they were to where it needed to be and how they were hidden. And they couldn't figure out where the diamonds were until they looked up at this rather tacky chandelier in the apartment. <laughs> <laughs> With, and then it I was like, we've got to drop on the floor at one point. Sorry. 
Yeah, yeah, no. Oh, it, and then they had to work out how to shove that chandelier up Peter Frank's butt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> elementary, elementary, my dear Watson. <laughs> yeah, <he's, laughs> um, But just before that, Peter Franks, who Bond kills in a quite a brutal fight, because they're both both actors are quite big guys. I mean, well over six foot, quite broad. And I thought it was actually quite a neat choice of the directors to put him, put them in a fight in that very small elevator. Because, I mean, Sean Connery, when he swings his fist at the start of the fight, his elbow goes straight through the glass, glass panel on the side. And, it, you know, you, in the first microsecond, I'm thinking, oh, that's a bit stupid. But then I realized, actually, no, as the fight went on, it was actually quite impactful because there was not much space for these two to really throw punches and kicks and stuff. So it was quite brutal. Um, so I thought that was really, really well done. I, I quite enjoyed that. Um, but what did you think of the elevator thing? I felt mo- I felt sorry for that beautiful elevator, though, because it was gorgeous, and they just totally trashed it. I'm not sure that it was originally glass-coated. Maybe they put the head of those glass panels in for the effect of the fight, because they must have been sugar glass. They yeah, I mean, I've never glass. seen one of those elevators glass coated. There are, they do still exist in the West End yeah. and older offices in Harley Street and Wimpole Street and so on. Um, but I, you know, I thought that fight was 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 really really good, Phil. Yeah, I mean, I would say that it, it it was amazing how they were able to find lots of things to actually hit each other with in that small space, but somehow <laughs> they managed to find extra things to hit each other with <laughs> in an area that doesn't seem to have anything which was quite interesting. <laughs> and then, you know, just at the very last minute, he managed to find the, what was it? One of them had an axe that he just found on the wall. And then the last... crowbar. Oh, it? no, a crowbar. Yeah. Well, why is there a crowbar on the wall? Well, it was part of the fire, the fire safety bit where you had the crowbar so you could smash a window to get out and then the fire hydrant or the fire extinguisher was next to the crowbar. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But, so they... um. I mean, again, anyone who's listening to this has got no freaking idea what what part of the film we're in or what the hell's going on, but we're smuggling diamonds, people, Uh, and the diamonds at the moment are in a chandelier, and they've got a dead body on the floor, which they're going to use to smuggle the diamonds to wherever it's going on the... I think it's going to America, uh, because they're in Amsterdam currently. Um, So Bond and um, uh, Tracy, what's her name? No, not Tracy. Tiffany. Tiffany Chase. Yeah. Um, Tiffany, yeah. Tiffany, jeweler, diamonds. That's how I remember it. Um, so off camera, we don't see this happening, but obviously it's implied that they then pluck the diamonds off this chandelier and shove it up the butt of Peter Frank's dead body. And then that's put in a coffin and gets shipped to wherever. And at customs in the USA, uh, Bond uh, is greeted by a customs agent who tells everybody else to bugger off. And it turns out it's Felix Leiter from the CIA, who's played by now, I think this is the fifth actor that's played him, maybe the fourth. Norman um, Burton, the actor's called. Okay. Uh, and uh, the coffin goes to the funeral home because Bond is met by three really dodgy looking people. It's the Blues <laughs> Brothers, isn't it? It was the Blues Brothers. I'm sure they just sort of wandered <laughs> onto set and said... Uh, you mean you like know. the... The kind of Chicago gangster version of the Blue Brothers. We've got Brothers. a full tank of gas and we're wearing shades and we'll just take Bond <laughs> off with this. Yeah. Hey, Bond, we're going to take you to the funeral home now. But it's, Come it's, on, son, think, get in front. Sit in between us. I think they are... It's in, still so surreal. It's much safer. Yeah. It's much more comfortable up front, you see. 
But they're they're in Vegas, so I mean it's run by gangsters, isn't it? So that makes sense that they would have that kind of uh, that kind of character there. It's probably run by the mafia, so they've probably got those sorts of characters to uh, to do it. I got a brother. Yeah, well, before, yeah, well, before that, on the pl- when Bond is on the plane, the camera sort of pans past Bond to the curtains at the back, separating the compartment, and you just see. Uh, what's his face? The creepy oh, weirdo Mr. looking one of the two. Mr. Wynn. Mr. Kid. Mr. Wynn. You just see his eye through the uh, through the curtain. And it is so, so creepy. Um, I'm just going to pop in the chat for you guys here. Really, I can't wait until we start videoing these because it'll be more fun. Um, but it is so, so creepy. Because they then obviously are waiting for him at the funeral home. Um, so Bond, there's some thing with the diamonds where he's put fake ones in the dead body because they cremate it and then bring the diamonds to him and then Mr. Wint and the other one knock him on the back of the head, stick him in a coffin so that he can be Bond can be cremated. Um yeah. I by this time I was kind of losing interest. So one of you needs to take over. <laughs> but but I mean the the sequel I did kind of get my attention again when Bond was going through the cremation thing and it was literally about to set him on fire and it was getting really hot in there because then I was thinking, how the hell is he going to get out of this? Yeah. But get out of it, he does, because they realise the diamonds are fake, so they pull him out of there to, you know, obviously get him to go and retrieve the real ones, I think. Yeah. And that's I'm... where he then goes to Vegas. That's where I wrote down, this film is surreal. The whole thing, just, just surreal. Yeah, it make, it, yeah, it didn't make any sense because, like, you know, they, they've no. already, they would have, when they would have retrieved the diamonds, they would have put it in the actual um, urn. So they would have seen at that point that they were phony. They wouldn't have even given them to him. They would have realized at that point that they were fake. So why go through the process of actually doing it? And then they've already given them. And then all of a sudden mm. they discovered that they're fake rather than actually examining them in the first place when they'd actually burned it in the first place. It made no sense. Yeah, yeah and also if they were fake, how? why didn't they sort of get at least a little bit singed or damaged or whatever because they're not real diamonds? Well, I thought they'd just like, been very well cleaned after being you know, burnt out of the body. It was very know. quick, wasn't it? Very really quick process. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's literally seconds because like the coffin goes in and then the guy comes out like literally straight away with a urn and hands it to him. And that's the problem with this film. It just it's so hard to talk about. Nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, it, it absolute nightmare. So then we end up in Vegas and now I can finally talk about some clothes because Bond turns up in a white tux. Um and it's uh, it's actually the kind of like the white sort of similar style to the Casino Royale one because it's got the double-breasted mm. lapels on the single-breasted jacket. Um, you know, I'm I'm glad to see that the pleat ratio on the shirts has been reduced after the last film. Yeah, <laughs> <We haven't laughs> the, the tailor was girls. Anthony Sinclair for this for this jacket apparently. Um, yeah, wardrobe master was Ray Beck. Um, so. I, did you see the um, the Sammy Davis Jr. deleted scene, Bobby? I haven't seen the deleted scene. I know about so, it. So there's a scene with Sammy. He's he's at the, he's at a table and he's not doing very well. But he's talking to um, 
Willow White's Willow White's um, sort of um, Saxby, isn't it? His um, sort of minion for for the the, the owner the owner of the um, or the kind of the manager of the casino, uh, Albert Saxby. And in this scene with uh, Samuel Davis Jr., um, basically uh, they're both chatting, and in comes Bond. And Sammy Davis Jr., Jr., who's quite, you know, he's quite a fashionable guy. He was, he was one of the Rat Pack, the Rat Pack wasn't he, at the time. Yeah. Turns around to Saxby and says, oh, my God, he looks like he should be on top of a wedding cake. So he yeah. properly <laughs> takes a piss out of Bond as he walks in his white dinner jacket. But I thought, you know, it's classic, classic Bond, isn't it, really? Well, here's the thing, right, and Phil, oh, you come in on this because you're the gambling person. Um, yeah. But <laughs> Bond sticks out like a sore thumb in this casino. Because everybody's pretty much dressed quite casually, like they've literally just come from a burger joint or something, and they're playing slot machines, and some are playing Baccarat, and some are playing blackjack and whatever, and Bond is the only person who's in a tux. He sticks out like a sore thumb. It's basically, the modern day equivalent of that is basically me if I went to see you playing poker, because I would stick out like a sore thumb. Because I would put my Skyfall replica tuxedo on to go and visit you. Do you know, I've seen some early footage of um, the World Series of Poker that was played at Binion's Horseshoe um, Casino around 1974. And they did all look like normal people. They dressed in normal like clothes, T-shirts, trousers. It was only a couple of players that would wear the, the proper suits and the actual cowboy hats. It was Amarillo Slim that would wear the suit and he would wear the um, cowboy hat. Generally, though, in America, unfortunately, people tend to wear casual clothes to go to the casino. And it's only in Europe where the insistence, particularly in the 60s and 70s, that you had the insistence of wearing a suit, shoes, um, jacket, and in some cases a tie. Um, and I think they still have that rule in Crockford's, um, which is in Curzon Street, I believe. I believe you still have to wear a tie there because I think the membership there is, uh, last time I checked, was about £10,000 a year. Um, and the idea of that is to keep certain people out of that casino. Keep the riffraff yeah. out. Yeah. So you have the, the um, oil billionaires and the Chinese um, businessmen will always play there. Um, and I, I believe you do have to wear smart clothes there but in vegas it's always been casual because it's hot there it's very hot you know so at that time they probably didn't have much in the way of air conditioning maybe they did i don't know but it was very much a a place where you could just relax and not think about stuff yeah so um thank you for that phil um i would just like to say at this point um uh, just give a little what should we call it? But the Tailoring Talk podcast does not condone gambling. Um, please gamble responsibly. Please ask the taxpayers' permission before you make any phone calls. And um, when the fun stops, stop. Sponsored by Triple Eight dot com. Poker, play online, and uh, do whatever. Um, so, the, but obviously, so it's seen that um, that we then get Lana Wood's introduction as Plenty O'Toole. Um, I mean, she. She was quite striking, actually. Natalie Woods was very attractive. She was. Her sister was very attractive. Very attractive lady. Very tragic. Um, her um, dying in the way that she... More on that later. Yeah. Um, Robert Wagner, haven't they reopened the inquiry up? 
I don't know. The last I read, they closed the case, but he was. The whole um, Jill St. John, Lionel Wood feud lasted for many, many years, many, many years. Because mm. um, Lionel Wood thought that uh, this sort of rivalry between her and Jill St. John and her husband, Robert Wagner, may have been the cause of the death of her sister, but I don't know. It's, it's never been concluded. Yeah. So, it's an interesting wow. documentary on been... Netflix about it. Oh, oh really? What's okay. it called? I don't remember what it's yeah. called, but I did watch it. It's... Um... It came out 2019, um, and it goes drills down into the evidence, um, and it questions some of the people that were on the boat um, at the time. Yeah, you see, here's another continuing con- continue- continuity thing, right? Because they then go up to the room, the hotel room, and he takes a dress off, and then she's going to the bathroom to freshen up. And then he goes into the main room and he's about to undo his tie and he's greeted with the thugs from the funeral home who have got him at gunpoint and obviously a conversation takes place. The other two go to the bathroom and they drag Plenty out and she's basically topless. So she's trying to cover up her modesty. Um, And then they just go and throw her out of the window. Um, More on that in a minute. But then... After they go, he then goes to the bedroom and Tiffany's lying in the bed waiting for him. I think she was already there before the other couple came up. I know, but isn't that weird? Well, she's very keen. She's very keen to get the diamonds. These diamonds were valued, what, $50,000? No, 50,000 carats. So it would have been... But then is she working with the funeral home people at this, this point? Yeah. Is she in cahoots with them? Well, I think she's in cahoots with herself. I think she just wants to see this, see this, see this through. Uh, and she's she's shacking up with Bond to find out the location of the diamonds. I mean, she gets, you know, the fringe benefits for doing it. But when she's actually, you know, in flagrante delecto with, with Bond, she kind of starts sort of nuzzling his neck. But you can see in her eyes, she's like, oh, I'm going to be more, a bit more calculating about this. Where, where are the... Um, where are the where are the jewels? How can I get how can I get him to confess where the jewels are? Um, so I don't think she's in cahoots with anyone. I think she's almost gone gone independent here. Just wants to see see it through. I don't know. What do you okay. think, Phil? I think she's probably got loads of contacts all over the place. Someone who deals with those yeah. sorts of diamonds and that kind of money would have contacts all over the place. So I think she is comfortable in Vegas. Clearly, she knew her way around, and she probably knew who to speak to to probably get the information that she needed to find where Bond was, or in this case. Peter Franks, if she hadn't already yeah. figured out then, that it was Bond, but she's not working with she's not working with the funeral guys. Let's assume that John's right. So she's yeah. already in the room the whole time that's going on. So imagine that the funeral guys did, weren't in the room, and he's gone up with plenty, and he's going to nail her. But <laughs> but she's waiting in the bed. So then what does she do? Does she just get involved in a three? Do you see what I mean? I think, it's it Vegas, such mate. It's a Vegas. mind fuck. It's Vegas. It's Vegas, it's, baby. Yeah. It's Vegas, you know. Anything goes, you know. I mean, my favourite line of that scene was um, the, 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 the henchmen throw the poor plenty down into the, into the pool. And, um, and Bond says, oh, good shot. And he goes, well, I didn't know there was a pool down there. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And then Connery you know, elbows that him. That I loved. That was funny. So that um, they didn't obviously throw her out of the window. What they did is they built a sort of, I think it was about a six foot high platform by the pool. And then she 
was then put onto the stuntman's shoulders, and then he basically had to sort of kneel down. And then the idea was that he would then just sort of propel her up into the air, and then they would just sort of film that shot of her falling into the pool. Um, so uh, she work. was not. Someone's got to do it. Yeah, you know. exactly. She was not put in danger at that stage, but more on that in a bit. Um, so okay, so then he basically does it with what's her face. So that Definitely. is that is um, on our little because Alex isn't here, but on our um, sexometer, that's number Shag one. Counter. Shag yeah, counter. Shag counter. Yeah, that's number one. I actually okay. have that in my notes as well, Bobby, written down here. Shag count number one. Okay. Have you got any <laughs> more on that tally? I don't think so. No. I think I think maybe um Tiffany gets gets another tumble towards the end of the film later on. After the after the um the, the scene on the boat with the Winton kid. I think maybe there. Yeah. But so we don't actually really... quite quite um Bond's in quite control of himself in this film almost, really, isn't he? Well, I don't know, because when he meets Bambi and Thumper later, you see the look on his face because he thinks, oh, I'm going to get into a bit of a threesome here, and then they start kicking the shit out of him. <laughs> He's still got that little sex pest kind of thing yeah. carrying on over from uh, Goldfinger when he tries to get in pussy's knickers. And uh, what was the other film? Uh, you Only Live Twice. Well, I won't be needing those then. <laughs> Shoving the oysters away. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so i don't think he's reformed in this john i think it's just there's no. less opportunity um so so then we go to vegas where the cia is surveilling the circus um and this was a real circus i mean everything that you see there was absolutely real it wasn't stunt people or whatever i mean they were just happy to be on camera in a bond film and just put a show on for them um the the guy who gives um Tiffany, Tiffany a clue um, where he holds a sign up at her. Yeah. Is that Yafet Koto? I don't The actor. think so. He was, I think it is. I, some, John, someone looked that up. Um, I what think he, What would the character be called, do you think? Uh, the, uh, croupier. He, I'm looking, Blackjack Croupier. Well, he was a croupier, but the name on his tag oh, yeah. is Frank... I think it's just Frank 505, 5005. But I'm going to put his picture in. I think it's Yafet Koto, a very young, who we would then later see in, um, I think, Live and Let Die, maybe. Was he a crap stealer? No, it was Blackjack. He was dealing. He was dealing. I've got, I've got um, I don't know. I've got, yeah, I know who you mean. I mean, I've got uh, EJ Tex Young as crap stealer. I've got Vincent Wong as Casino Groupier. groupier it's definitely not Vincent Wong. I mean, this guy is as, you know... Uh, I, can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't find out as it could be. African-American as they come. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, we've got Jack Ross, Casino staff, uncredited. Maybe, maybe he's not credited. Maybe, maybe yeah, he's not credited. He is. Yeah. I'm going to try and look that up. Yeah. Um, but she, right. He tells her to uh, try the water balloons. Yes, that's right. That's yeah. right. So she goes. We have that whole sequence where she then goes to the she's game with the water not balloons. Impressed, is she? She's not impressed at all, and she's not even no. making an effort. And the kid next to her absolutely goes Clocks off on one. It. It's like, I think it's Jacob Rees Mogg, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I say that's not fair. 
<laughs> man who's considerably aware of what unfairness is, Jacob Rees-Mogg, obviously. I know. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Anyway, we won't get political on this podcast. Move on. Yep. Um, so moving on, um, then um, Bond, so she then goes back to her home. Well, we, now, we, you've missed a bit out, Bobby. Bobby, you what? missed quite a... Something I, I found quite, I thought was quite tricky, um, and was that scene where they had that black lady turning into a gorilla. <gasps> yes. I found that I found that quite quite dubious, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, no idea. It's like they. It's like <sighs> you know we we would have thought in this day and age, right? On Her Majesty's Secret Service with the whole the you know, dinner the, the dinner party, bananas, the Chinese girl eats rice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dinner party. They might have just looked at that and thought, do you know what? That was maybe a bit too on the nose. But in this one, they're just like, oh hey. Do you know what we did in the script for On Her Majesty's Secret Service? Let's just do more of that and turn this black yeah. woman into a gorilla. Ugh. Fucking hell. Like, seriously. Terrible. I'm so sorry for the for the language, people listening, but, I mean, it warrants it. It is... It, yeah, it was very... I think that's why I didn't bother screenshotting that bit, because I was so disgusted. Yeah. Um, you know, and I know we say of its time, of its time, etc. But there are some things that you just think, come on. I mean, that is just, it's too much. Um, so, so yeah. Can I so just then ask, we could, yeah. Without, I'm not going to go on about the last scene, but can I just say, does anybody else not feel this is the most convoluted story about a bunch of diamonds you've ever seen? Yes. yes. <laughs> but you see, here's the problem, right? So, towards the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service when that was filming. And I think by the by the end of filming, they knew that Lazenby was was a done deal because as far as he'd burned all his bridges with them, they couldn't stand him. His agent was telling him not to do another one. Um, so, and then obviously he'd, he'd kind of set his reputation for, for the worse. Um, but Richard Maybaum was basically drafting scripts for Diamonds Are Forever and he was sort of going by the source material, but also trying to carry on the story from On Her Majesty's. And this originally, his intention was for, for this to be what I wanted it to be, which was a revenge thriller. Um, but then they decided to kind of go away from that when they were recasting the role and tr- and then sort of circle back round to the book again. But then what happened was the, the script that ca- they came up with the producers decided that it wasn't exciting enough because by this time there were a lot of spy things going on. There was, I think the man from Uncle was out at that time with David McCallum and um, uh, Robert, no, not Robert. Ragnar. Robert Vaughan? Uh, Robert Vaughan. Robert Vaughan. Robert Vaughan, yeah. And, um, and then you had The Sane and you had The Professionals, both of which were very successful shows. And then the Rat Pack had their own spy thing going on and there were a number of other spy movies out. And so they sort of decided that something else needed to happen because the script was too generic of a typical spy thriller. And then Cubby Broccoli goes to sleep one night and has a nightmare about his best mate Howard Hughes. And in the nightmare, he he's standing on the balcony outside Howard Hughes's penthouse apartment and he sees um, Hughes through the window with his back to him. So in the nightmare, Cubby calls out to him and calls out Sam and knocks on the window because Sam is what Howard was known to his closest friends. And the guy turns around and it's not Howard Hughes, it's an imposter. 
So that's, can you now see where this is going? Yeah. So that's where this, con- so then they decided to bring in the character of uh, Willard White or whatever his name is, who's the industrialist, and then come up with the plot that Blofeld will kidnap him and hold him to ransom so that he could then get all the diamonds to then build this space weapon to then try and start a nuclear war bidding Willard- race or whatever. Willard Wright was played by Jimmy Dean, who was actually an employee of Howard Hughes as well, wasn't he? So, yeah. Exactly. So, so, so it's Cubby having some weird, probably LSD or marijuana-induced dream about his mate, and this is where it all kind of... We've ended up here today with possibly the worst Bondathorn episode of Tailoring Talk so far. We had to hit... But do you know the funny thing was, right? I was saying to Phil last night, because he called me after, uh, and I said to Phil... You know, I knew that On Her Majesty's Secret Service was my least favourite one so far, but I didn't think I would have to wait this long for it to get off the bottom of the list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you I know thought what? I'd have to wait a little while for that yeah. to happen. And you probably sacrificed the uh, the England final for this to watch this, didn't you? I I did. Like, yeah, I, I watched the first it. half. And I watched it. It was yeah. cracking, cracking game. Really good. Yeah. So uh, anyway, then we get then what's her face? Uh, Tiffany goes back to her house, and Bond is already waiting for her. Interesting little fact: Do you know whose house that was that they shot at? Howard Hughes's house? No, it wasn't. It was Kirk Douglas's house. Ah. Uh. Um. So pulled another favour from a mate there. Um. But. Uh, you know, so they have some sort of conversation and then she notices that um, Plenty is actually in the swimming pool. She's been anchored down and drowned um, because the um, gangsters or whatever mistook Plenty for Tracy. Tiffany. And then she's... Tiffany. Tiffany, yeah, sorry. I'm still hung on Diana Rigg. Sorry. I make no... Actually, do you know what? I'm not even going to apologise for that. Um, so... Um, so, yeah, so then I think at this stage she sort of realises that the stakes are a bit higher than her own sort of selfish wants or whatever. So this is where she sort of agrees to team up with Bond and help him. Now, Lana Wood had a bit of a hairy experience filming that because that was her tied to the bottom of that swimming pool. Um, but what they did is they sort of anchored her down and they left a little bit so she what she was meant to do was sort of crouch down a little bit under the water so that she could just straighten up and her head would be above water but while they were filming the swimming pool was on a slant the, the bottom of it was on a, a slant bless you philip yeah um i i won't edit that sneeze out it was it was more fun than what was happening in the film at this point um and so what was happening while they were filming they didn't notice that it was on a slant and as the water was kind of moving, it kept sort of moving her down the slope. So for her, the water was getting deeper and deeper. And by the end of it, she basically couldn't straighten up to get her head above. So she started to drown. Um, And then luckily someone noticed and then they went in and and plucked her out. Um, But yeah, she, she got quite scared at one point and thought, they might not notice in time and, and she'd end up drowning down there. Yeah. Didn't know that. Filming in the 70s, hey? <laughs> yeah. Safety goes oh. out the window. Uh, so there there we go. And then the next sequence is um, Tracy basically taking Bond. Tiffany. 
Tiffany, sorry. I'm going to keep doing it, aren't I? This is going to be a bitch to edit. Um, so, uh, to the um, sort of that, is that the, it's not the NASA training, it's the laboratory or White's kind of technical laboratory yeah. sort of place. And this is where we do get a sort of what I thought was quite a sort of nice little scene because uh, Connery has to, sorry, Connery Bond has to, um, has to, I've been up since four in the morning, people. Um, so Connery has to, Connery Bond. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, Phil, can you take over, please? So, yeah, so um, James Bond uh, goes to this plant and it's at this point he befriends someone who uh, is responsible for radiation shields. And apparently this oh, one little disc that you just put on your uh, on your pocket is designed to protect you from all the radiation that is uh, that comes through this uh... Phil, I don't think it protects you. I think like cuz I've, I've I've visited um, a, a nuclear power station in my in my time. It's designed to tell you when you've had too much. Right. So it will change colour. So it's more an indicator rather than a shield. Does that make sense? Well, they, they described it as radiation shield. So that's not what they do? Well, no. They, all, they, all they do is the, 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 the little coloured discs, they react to the um, radioactivity and they change colour. And you get like a sort of a, a bit like a litmus, a, gra- a gradation scale. So when it starts going from green to orange to red, basically start just get out if it goes orange before it goes red. Right, okay. So the shield the shield is is the name of the safety process, really. I see. Rather than it being like this sort of, you know, Captain America shield, okay. if that makes sense. All right. So this is where they go, and uh, you manage to befriend, befriend this guy, and he pretends to be someone checking radiation shields to get inside the, uh, the, the domain where the tape is found. Was it the tape? Or is, I mean, I know that the Doctor was there. He's the guy that was basically going to be building that satellite. Dr. Metz. Dr. Metz, yeah. He was going to be building mm. the satellite, wasn't he, with the laser, um, laser. that was going to start blowing the laser. Because mm-hmm. um, uh, they've got all the diamonds out on the uh, on the bench as well, haven't they? Um, but yeah, Bond, um, you know, and this is where I love Connery's portrayal of Bond, because the this, these are the moments when he gets the humour right, he really does get it right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like I'm checking radiation shields or whatever, and, and the guy's like, get out of here, you annoying man, and and eventually Connery goes, and then the other guy comes in, and they realise that it's a ruse, and so they go after him, and then that's when he gets in the moon buggy to escape. Can I, um, can I just say one thing? that As a teacher, this does confirm my theory, by the way, that if you walk around with a clipboard and look like you're busy, no one bothers you. Yeah. Brilliant. I can recommend that to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, you will, if you go to uh, tailoringtalk.com forward slash clipboards, you'll be able to buy your very own tailoring talk clipboard to <laughs> be able to wander into schools. And actually, I take that. Uh, no, 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 it. no. Bobby, don't condone that, please. Thank you. <laughs> so, oh, so the moon landing stuff I found interesting because at the time in the seventies, yeah. wasn't there a big sort of conspiracy theory that the moon landing was all filmed? So this is kind of a little sort of little poke or little joke about that. They're actually worth filming it and not actually doing it for real. That's, yeah, that's, were... that's what I thought. I picked up on that, but I thought the actual conspiracy yeah. about the moon landings was much later than that. So I just thought that like this kind of 
was maybe the catalyst or where it started from. But you're saying that this actually people had already thought that there was conspiracies about the moon landings. I think so. Yeah. Even in seventy one. Yeah, I think so. Well, that's interesting. Well, it's like yeah. the flat Earth people, isn't it? People just don't believe what the evidence in front of them, so they have to come up with this crackpot theory. I think they just. Yeah. I think those people just want attention. They don't actually believe in flat Earth. They just want attention. All oh, right. Everyone loves a crackpot theory, don't they? It's a trouble. <laughs> there must be people that really genuinely do believe in flat Earth. I, I don't think so. Yeah. I know one person who's a flat earther, and he does it just to get attention on Facebook. He actually got banned from Facebook um, because he was so hot on this whole flat Earth thing, and he was, and they right. they believed that he was um, promoting propaganda, so they banned him from Facebook because all he ever did was talk about flat Earth. He just wants it. All he right. wanted was attention, basically. <laughs> what do flat earthers do? Flat earthers really? Like, do they literally believe that Earth is like a rectangle just floating in? Space? No, they believe it's they believe it's like it's round, but it's kind of flat round. With a wall where the aliens oh, like control a disc. You. Yeah, like a disc. Yeah, yeah, around the edge. Right. So the um, the moon landings were seen. In, well, the biggest conspiracy theories of about the moon landings. And there's a lot of people who believe between 1969 and 1972 that they were were faked and that the 12 Apollo astronauts didn't actually walk on the moon. Um, And, uh, you know, some people look at at sort of the photographs and find evidence. Um, But obviously, we've got more evidence because we've got real rocks and things. And, you know... Mm. You know, late later high definition photographs share evidence of the footmarks on the on the on the moon and so on. But I just still I find it fascinating. Forty years of conspiracy theories. It just um, some people still believe they were fake. Now I just think it's yeah. fascinating. But this was very soon Amazing. after the actual landing on the moon. So I think since the film yeah. was made, we had actually landed on the moon. So then they pro- wanted to probably pay homage to that fact in this film. Um, but then they brought out the buggy. And in Vegas, it's like 36, 37, 38 degrees in this thing with this dome. He would have been absolutely yeah. sweating buckets r- driving around that terrain. But he comes out, not a bead of sweat on him. Looks crisp. Yeah. <laughs> he, I mean, to be fair, he probably wasn't actually driving that thing for most of that sequence. Um, the moon buggies didn't exist in 1971. It wasn't a thing. Uh, they came a little bit later. Not, I think in 72, 73. Um, so that was actually built by the same automobile customization company that also built um, the Green Hornet's Black Beauty car. And they also built the Monkey Mobile. You remember the monkeys? Come on, we watched the monkeys when we were yeah, I remember did. the monkeys, yeah. Wasn't, yeah. It a, wasn't it a beach buggy, the Monkey Mobile? Whatever the Monkey Mobile was, they built it. Yeah. And they built that oh, thing. Right. Cool. Um, and the tires kept breaking on it, um, so it just kept malfunctioning all the time. So in the end, they just had to put inflatable tires um, to help the thing to just kind of keep going long enough to film that action sequence. Uh, um, it was the sequence, Bobby, onwards. I think this sequence and the sequence later on with the police cars in Las Vegas. Well, I just thought I was watching a cannonball run. To be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Although that was ten years later. The Cannibal War was 81, wasn't it? But uh, it's just, and I think um, the director wasn't a big fan of big American cars, so he was quite ca- happy to sort of trash them. But uh, just, again, just a bizarre part of the film, wasn't it, really? That's the thing. It's like, because the first thing you get all of these sort of security people going out on their dirt trike things. 
Yeah. And you think that they'd be used to using them in some way, shape, or form. And but Bond doesn't really need to do much for them to crash on their own. It's just really surreal. And then the cars come out as well, and <laughs> they just crash on the, keep crashing on their own, um, rather than picking the flat route through the the kind of little mounds. The, the cars are trying to go up on the hills and everything, and they just, it's, it's like they were just like, let's just crash everything, and we'll just yeah. cut an action sequence together out of it. It's mental. Okay, again, in my notes here at this point, I've just written down, was Cubby on drugs? <laughs> before. Because it yeah, says, I'm I've a- written down, Cannibal Run, who was, who, where was this filmed? Was Cubby on drugs? Las Vegas version of Smokey and the Bandit. And finally, for some reason, I've just written down, Modesty Patches on Nipples. I think that's probably a later scene. But just <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing was just, again, surreal and weird. Yeah. And it just felt very un-Bond-like. I mean, the nearest... The nearest I can think of this scene was that reminded reminded me of any Bond um, sequence was the amazing um, one eighty flip of that car going across the river in, in one of Moore's films. Yes, um, um, that was we'll Live and Let Die, I think. Probably, we with, will with talk the American, about that. With the, big, the big redneck policeman. But um, so you know, I, I think um, we'll talk about that later on. But that's the nearest it got to. It was just it was just weird and surreal and. Are we talking about? Are we sorry to interrupt? Are we talking about the car chase yeah. on the Las Vegas Strip? Well, later no, on, still, yes. No, we're still in the kind of desert, that NASA sort of space base thing. But okay. from there, he then escapes with um, Tiffany. Yay! Well Give me a well cheer. Done, Tiffany um, Chase. Yes, that's right. In one of my favourite cars in the Bond series to date. The Mustang Mach 1, 1971 model, absolute effing beauty. Absolutely beautiful car. I love my muscle cars. I love Mustangs. I've got a Mustang itch itch that I still need to scratch. That car is absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, So I was really pleased to see that in this film. They had a deal with Ford, didn't they? All the cars in these were Fords, which is why they were quite happy to trash them. But yeah, I think Ford Ford um, insisted that, uh, that the must the the one was shown, and they also insisted that Bond had to drive the car, even though it was Tiffany's car. So he says, "Get in, doesn't he?" And then he drives off. Yeah, because um, then all of a sudden it becomes, you know, Bond car. Bond car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To be honest, I I want a black Mustang because John Wick. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um. But then we get that nifty little sequence in uh, through Las Vegas. That was shot shot on a back lot, actually. Uh, I don't know if it was shot in the USA on Universal's back lot or if it was actually shot at Pinewood. Um, but it was definitely shot in the studio portions of it, anyhow. What, the Las Vegas scene? The, the Las Vegas scene. Yeah. No, that was filmed in Las Vegas. Because if you, if you notice, there's all, all the uh, punters queuing up for slot machines. They're all standing out uh, watching, yeah. watching them film it. Well, yeah. No, no, the bit in you know the bit in the car park where he sort of weaves in and out and so on. That was oh, done there, in yeah. the back lot. Oh yeah, yeah. That was done in the back lot. Uh, but then we get that stunt, the two wheel stunt, uh, when he goes down the dead end and um, the sheriff's right behind him is like, "I got you now." And there's like a narrow alley. Think um, pod racing. Yeah. Yeah. Phantom Menace. Not quite. Sorry, it's a very. Te- I had to get my Star Wars link in. Sorry. Um, and then there's a very conveniently placed ramp, and then Bond goes up, 
uh, I think, passenger side to get through the alley. But then there's a continuity error because when you see them come out the other end, he's, he's the, the other side. side up. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. But he but he, he turns the wheel and I think he hits another ramp in that scene. So I think they they, they address that continuity, I think. If you no, watch it again, he does turn the wheel when he, when he changes sides. Okay. I'll have a look at it Which again. Is weird. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I can bring but myself. To what you said again. what you um, said earlier about um Howard Hughes closing Vegas explains now why the strip was so devoid of traffic because yeah. there's no way that I wrote uh, my notes at the time was no way would the Las Vegas strip be so devoid of traffic. They've actually built in Vegas a side kind of freeway that lets you get to the car parks of all the main hotels. And that's what you're supposed to do. If you go on the strip, you're stuck in traffic. Yeah. So that, that now explains why the strip was so bare. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. No, they did. They shut it down for five nights. Um, so they finish that. They get to the honeymoon suite at the hotel and then uh, at White's building. And this is where Bond then takes the elevator in the unconventional way to try and reach the very, very top, which is White's kind of office. I enjoyed that scene. That was really good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd never, the one thing Carolina said after what, so we both watched it in silence you know, because it is quite, especially when he's on the top of the lift and then it kind of goes to the top and then he looks up and, you know, it's like, is he going to get crushed or whatever? And then he repels over. And then as he goes through the, um, through the vents, through the window, Carolina just says, wouldn't dress like that to do that, would you? (laughs) (laughs) No, you'd be in like a black roll neck cat suit, wouldn't you? Yeah, with a, with a box of milk. You'd be dressed more like um, Johnny English, wouldn't you really, for that sort of scene? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't forget the milk tray uh, but yeah. no that was a, that was quite a good little sequence um, but yeah you would not do it in a t- but then when he goes in he sort of lands on a th- what looks a like toilet. a commode is it, is it an actual it's toilet oh, it is, yeah, it's, because it, it, there's a toilet roll there yeah, it's, yeah, yeah but it's, Willow, it's, it's meant to be Willow White's um, business hub like, basically the best place for, for, for getting all his work done is whilst he's having a dump yeah. You can see he's got like a rack of newspapers you can read whilst on the toilet next to him and the, yeah, and the yeah. bog roll and all the got screens. All the telephones, different telephones there, different yeah. lines. I, I was actually, I, you know, the first time I saw that, I thought, oh, that, that, that looks quite a nice place to have a wee. <laughs> it looks very comfortable. As long as the seat is slightly cushioned and, and yielding. Otherwise, you're going to have problems with uh, hemorrhoids, aren't you? For, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what, though. That's what I was thinking the... when I watched that. Who was the. Fucking arsehole that used that toilet last. Look at the length of the toilet roll. It's been left hanging, like, almost down to the floor by the look. Is he a mullet or an overhang man, though? Uh, What's a mullet? Is that when the toilet rolls turn the other other way? way? Yeah. Oh, my God. That irritates (laughs) me even more. Like, what the... Do you know... She's she's about 35 episodes behind, so it's a long time in the future before she hears this. But when she changes the toilet roll, she does it the mullet way, the other way around. Oh, right? divorce her. It, oh, my God. Yeah, I know. Like, totally. Oh, I love her. I love her so bit. much, but I love her so much. But Do you God find yourself having to turn it around each time? I str- yeah, every single time. Does she turn it back, Bobby? Does she turn it back afterwards? Because <laughs> if she does, then she knows that you're doing it, you see. But she's still turning it back and saying nothing. She's fucking with me, isn't yeah. she, John? <laughs> <laughs> trying to drive me nuts. 
<laughs> I'm going to have to insert a warning at the beginning of this episode before any yeah. of it rolls, right? Is anyone's oh. listening in your cars on your summer holidays or whatever, please <laughs> just skip to the next one. Um, <sighs> don't listen to this one. All the business episodes of Tailoring Talk, there's no swear. Well, actually, no, there was swearing on one recently, and it wasn't even me. It was Lady. just swore like a trooper. Um, but, yeah, anyhow. So can I just say, because I've just, right, so I don't like his tux. I don't like that tux at all. The satin on it is disgusting. It's a notch lapel, one button, fine. But what is, is with it? the... It's got the it's... wavy. It's got the wavy satin on the lapels. It looks gross. Is this this is the one that where he's sitting on the on the bog basically when he's that sitting black, on the toilet? That black, yeah, uh, yeah. For me, the one that the actually stu- the one that stuck out for me was the one where he actually goes to Howard Hughes's uh, house, Walter White's oh. house. That um, white, the cream one. Yeah, that cream suit. Love that cream linen suit with a pink tie. Yeah, now that I love. You know, so that kind yeah. of. That kind of made up for the fact that the uh, the other ones were so bad. Absolutely terrible, really. Um, so anyway, so he gets out of the toilet and then he finds Blofeld and Blofeld. But which one's which? Two Blofelds. Um, and then they talk about something and I can't remember what the hell it was. Uh, probably Blofeld's plans. Um, I think the then- phrase wrong pussy comes at one point as well in that sequence yeah yeah it does um and there's are there two cats as well yeah yes there are yeah yeah because there's one cat at the desk with blofeld at the desk and there's another cat that's with yep. blofeld on the sofa so, so Bond's basic- here, a third cat we have we've now reached three three white cats for spec for blofeld yeah, and and true, crucially true. one of the cats has the diamonds around his collar uh, mm-hmm. from the intro sequence yeah Exactly. So it must be the cat. So the cat with the diamonds is the real Blofeld cat, and the other one was an imposter. Yeah, he did the the cat with the diamonds, right? They obviously trained him well because when Bond throws or kicks the other cat and sees which way it goes to decide who he's going to kill, obviously it's the it's the clone cat, or it's the the cat, the actor cat, not the real cat, Um, because then. Like the the real cat comes in with diamonds, going "Hello, I'm the real cat." See, tricked ya. Sort of, you know. He walks in like, <laughs> swaggers in, um, and like, you know, not, it's not often you see a cat swagger in a film, but they, they, it swaggers yeah. in in this film. Probably th- realised I'm not the one being kicked, <laughs> you know. So, interesting scene. Yeah, I mean, he does really kick. He does really kick the hell out of that poor cat yeah. on the sofa, doesn't he? That was really bad. Do you think Blofeld, because he was getting his minions to? plastic surgery their faces to look like him do you think he was also getting stray cats and plastic surgerying surgerying their faces to look like his cat god that's That's, dark probably that's going too far i'm sure they would have i am able to have gone similar looking cat i am going to start my rewrite or my reboot of diamonds are forever (laughs) my version (laughs) 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 that is quite dark one question Well, yeah. One question before we before we move on in this scene, right? Did any of you watching this scene not just say to yourself, "For goodness sake, Blofeld, just shoot Bond dead"? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Don't create I some did. convoluted scene where he gets gassed and then carried out and put somewhere else and thrown and then transported. Just shoot him. Just He's kill him. Nemesis. Just shoot him dead. Yeah. yeah. Put us all out of our misery. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> <It's true. laughs> 
Um, yeah, but then so it, no, it's instead like... Instead he gets put in a pipeline, doesn't he, or something? Well, the thing is, before that, it gets worse, because they gas him, and then they put yeah. him in the back of the car, and then Wit and Kid, yeah. or whatever their names are, then drive him out of, of Blofeld's lair, but then they sort of kind of come out, and then a rock made out of plastic or whatever sort of goes up. It's basically like a scene from Thunderbirds. Yes, that's right, yeah, the... The, back, the back cave entrance, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Because Carolina was like, she gave up. This was the point where she gave up. She was like, fuck this. She's like, this, this, film, is this film is stupid. She goes, it's like those those things we used to watch when we were kids where it was puppets on a string. Yeah. Um, Thunderbirds. So, uh, it's, yeah, it's just crazy. Things. But he's in the boot of the car and they basically stick him in a pipe, which then the next morning is bur- he's buried underground, isn't he? Yeah, um, I was a bit confused by that scene because because he, he they made a big thing about him lying down on a bottle of perfume and smashing it, but it obviously that became clear later on in the film. Yeah, quite, but at the time you wondered if he plot. You wondered if he broke it because he sort yeah. of it, yeah. it kind of looked like he covered it up quickly so they couldn't see, and then it was smashed when he went, and so you're wondering if he'd taken some glass to untie himself or something oh, i don't know it's very I, confusing. I mean of yeah. all the, i mean thing is you go to vegas you know if you want to hide a body vegas is the place to do it and there's loads and loads of dead bodies <laughs> in vegas in the desert um you know in the middle of nowhere and they don't have to go crazy you know with the plan to bury the dead but in this case they got this whole big crane and pipes with a means of escape you know why did yeah. they go to so much trouble well, if all they wanted to do was yeah. All they wanted to do was kill him. All they needed to do was just put him yeah. in a desert somewhere in a cornfield, you know, a la casino. He'd never, body would never be found. And no one, no one checks that the pipes clear or anything. Um, but then he well, does actually, make the a machine. Da- the machine that goes through that we think is sealing up the pipes is a real oh. machine, but it's designed to check the pipes. So people do check them for obstruction. Yeah. I think but it's just that machine would probably kill you if you didn't get out of its yeah. way, right? Yeah. Um, but he does make a little friend down there, doesn't he? Mm? Yeah. Oh, what, Ben? Cuba. It would have been a perfect opportunity to play that Michael Jackson song, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Sean Connery singing it. I won't try and do it. I might try and do, I might try and do it as an outtake. Um, so anyway, so Bond manages to get out uh, because he manages to follow the tunnel down and then... Uh, he sabotages the machine. Yeah, that's it. He shorts the machine that's meant to be sealing and clearing the tunnel. And then obviously that means that they have to come to sort out the malfunctioning machine. And then he appears at the manhole. The way that we love him appearing in these situations uh, with some sort of quip and then walks out in full tuxedo. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, and then he we switch to probably his best outfit in the film, which is that mm. sort of soft, kind of pinky-looking linen suit with a tie that is done up way too short. I mean, what the hell they were thinking there? Crazy. Um, but he's with the CIA guys and with Q, and um, uh, they have worked out where Mr. White's um, house is and where he's probably being held captive. So uh, Bond goes, and that's where he meets Bambi and Thumper. Um, and This scene, he looks the oldest he looks in all of the film. Of all, all the film, he looks the oldest here. He looks like their, their granddad's arrived for, you know, for an afternoon of watching Bond. 
there doesn't seem to be any consistency in his hair or his wig no. in this film. Um, because in some scenes he does look like his old self, you know, from the 60s. Yeah. And then in others, it looks like he's, you know, he's basically doing this while he's preparing to play Ramirez in Highlander. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am Ramirez from Spain. Um, it's ridiculous. We should talk about that film one day on the other yep. one, on PPT. Yep. Um, so Bambi and Thumper are two guards, I guess, or bodyguards or whatever. And Bond wanders in. Uh, his cheeky little grin on his face because it's like, okay, you know, I'm going to have my wicked way with these two. And they absolutely kick the shite out of him. The weird thing is they eventually kick him off into the swimming pool and then they go to drown him. After having had his ass handed to him for the last five minutes, in the swimming pool, he's got these two very strong women holding him down, but then somehow he manages to get out of it, and then with one hand on each head, he then basically starts drowning them, which I thought was pretty... It was lame. It was was lazy. And lame. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, like it was clear that these girls, you know, knew what they were doing because they were hired by the top brass. You know, they did a lot of like flips and things like that. And, and, you know, they, even though they were, they were very beautiful, they also had a menace about them as well. So really and truly, he should have had no chance, but because it's Bond. Yeah, it's getting some really good Grace Jones vibes from um, Bambi as well. Yeah. Or Thumper, which Thumper, the, the, she was uh, really, think... the way she moved was really cool, really thrown menacing and. You know, yeah. I'm waving my hands around right now. You can't see this, but she just the way she held herself and the way yeah. she bent her body was really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There was a lot of that, you know, yeah. around that period. But no, it, it was it was just too easy for Bond in the end. Yeah. Well, they managed to rescue White from there uh, to get him to the casino, and we go back to the casino, and then we have a lovely moment with Q where he's basically playing the slot machines <laughs> and he's winning every single one. And then uh, Tiffany sort of comes up to him and she's like, oh my God, that's amazing. How are you doing it? And then he explains that he's got some sort of electromagnetic gadget. Yeah, it's an RPM controller. Half... An RPM yeah. controller. So it detects the precise moment when it's going to hit the right combination. And they just works. It works the sequences automatically to come up with bar bar bar, um, and he's doing it with every single one. That's the only gadget that spr- I made a list of all the gadgets. So it was one was the mouse trap in the pocket, the fingerprint yep. that was added to James Bond's finger. There was the RPM yep. controller, oh, yeah. and then there was the voice box. Hmm. That was it, and that was it. But there was also hmm. his him, uh, you know, with his. Tool to get uh, on top of the, um, the rappel gun. Yeah, to get on top of the uh, the rappel. Yeah, there was that as well. But apart from that, though, yeah. those are the only tools, the only gadgets. I think the RPM counter is a great gadget, but it's obviously it's pure science fiction. But it'd be awesome to have. Oh, it's pure, oh, yeah. pure, pure. So science you'd get fiction. thrown out of the casino as soon as you were found out, though, wouldn't you? Right? Oh, you'd get murdered. Yeah, you would. You'd get killed. Yeah. <laughs> but he's he's sort and of halfway. Q just wandering along, like not even collecting the cash, just rinsing every machine. <laughs> Yeah. Quite happily, in front of all the cameras, you know. Because it's not about the money for him. He's just enthralled no. with this new gadget that he's invented. Yeah. And he's proudly telling Tiffany about it. And then uh, she could just cuts him off halfway, poor thing, because she sees Blofeld wander past, dressed as Maggie Thatcher. Um, and then this is my first Gremlins 2, uh, the new batch, 
um, moment of this film um, because he just looks ridiculous. I Blofeld mean, in drag. <laughs> Blofeld Brilliant. in drag. And I just... So I think it was in... Um, when we were talking about On Her Majesty's Secret Service and we were talking about um, Telly Savalas as Blofeld. And then uh, I think I mentioned that Charles Gray's Blofeld is widely regarded as being the worst interpretation, and I totally agree with that. For me, it was awful. I know there are other people that would beg to differ, but what I you just mean? thought... Charles Gray? I did not. I didn't like him. I didn't like this version of Blofeld. I just thought he was pathetic. Charles Gray's Dick Emery in drag, basically. Ooh, you are awful, but I like you. Do you know what? It, you know. Do you know? And you know what? It was a it was a, um, a catalyst for him later on being in Rocky Horror Picture Show, and he was wearing the fishnet tights in that. So <laughs> makes perfect. I sense. didn't even know he was in that. Got a taste for it, didn't he? Yeah, it was. <laughs> um, John. Yeah. Uh, clench your buttocks. I haven't seen the Rocky Horror thingy, Majiggy. Oh. <laughs> You're just about to give up on life, aren't you? <laughs> well, I, I actually, do you know what? I've got a story about this because I'd, I'd never seen it. I knew about it vaguely, but I, I knew nothing about it. And I was dating a girl um, who I was, was a bit, I would say she's a kind of a, had a touch of goth to her uh, at university. And the local cinema at university was doing a, a Rocky Horror picture show night. And it was like an 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock showing. And she said, We should go, we should go. So we pitched up, just in our normal clothes. Um, and oh my god, I felt like a pariah. Everybody there were in fishnets and weird. And obviously, um, there's a whole thing about when you go to Rocky Horror Picture Show, anybody who turns up not in outfits become the Brad and the Janet character. And I spent the whole night with people throwing rice at me from each every quarter. Yeah. Whenever damn it, damn it, Janet turned. Whenever that that line came through, they all screamed it at us. It was just the most humiliating, awful experience. And I'm not a fan of the film. It's a very much an acquired taste. It's, it's um, a cult and film. I know it's a complete. Yeah. It's a cult it's film. A very yeah. It's much a cultural phenomenon. Film, yeah. And respect it completely, but it's not my cup of tea. And I, I have traumatic memories of that. That 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 how long it was at the cinema because I couldn't leave. Imagine getting up and leaving halfway through. I'd be lynched. So, um, oh, you've opened you've opened some some traumatic memories for me there, Bobby. I'm so sorry. Can I can I can I just whilst we've got you in that little pit of despair, can I just compound it because you are our resident space expert and uh Oh my god. Okay. Are you, are you talking about the science scenes here? I'm talking about the science scenes because we now okay. finally see this space weapon and it unveils itself and unfolds itself. It's a blinking camera. It's a camera lens. Um I have I have so many notes about this scene. Uh, I've I've said so offensive to scientists here. Just in, in the control room, they're all twiddling knobs to to oscillators. There's no there's no science involved there at all. They, they've just got let's get some fancy oscillators from our labs in, and they can twiddle knobs. There's there's a sound waves they're looking at, and 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 the, oh my god, the, the scene where it's shooting the Earth, the Earth is an oil painting. <laughs> the earth is an oil paint. You can see the brush strokes in the oil, in the oil. Oh my god, the special effects. Oh my god. Oh my I know Bond I know Connery took all the money for the um, but this is offensive. This is offensive. <laughs> and it is Let's it's make the... the rockets glow red. And then when they exploded, it pans back and the rockets are still there, still glowing red after the explosion. But it's never just... mind that. What about the Chinese soldier that is on fire in front yeah. of the rockets oh, as they're goodness. sort of heated red? 
That is crazy. <laughs> it is mad. <laughs> Cue me making lots of, um, you know, sort of stir fry joke. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, that whole thing, because this is where the special effects, it was so cringeworthy, really. The other thing as well, on the fashion side of things, right? So we are entering the 70s, which is full of big wide lapels and flares and stuff. And we know that because of Roger Moore. Uh, bless him. Um, but it's almost like in this film, they start off, they start off like sort of late 60s. And by the end of the film, they finish in the 70s fashion wise. Because if you now look at what everybody's wearing in this sequence, so Bond is wearing a sort of, tweed flannel hybrid jacket but the lapels are dark herringbone tweed actually i think you'll find it's got that sort of clover kind of um uh, lapel shape at the top and then uh what's his face the american guy willard or whatever his name is right walter no it's not is it walter white willard Willard white willard white yeah he's wearing i mean the lapels on his thing are ridiculously wide but he's also got that sort of cowboy jacket thing it's kind of a texan rhinestone look isn't it really yeah exactly he's just missing that sort of he should have been wearing that sort of love knot thing that they wear instead of a tie um but yeah it's the the fashion is it's just really inconsistent in this film as well i do like the jacket that connery's wearing in that bit though but don't you think it, it, uh, what I find fascinating about the Bond films and kind of links to what we're doing here with, with the ta- tailoring aspect, what an amazing um, time capsule the Bond films mm. are. You can see it's one of the best ways of looking at not just the fashion, but the social mores of the, of the whole of our, of our Western society from the, you know, the, the late 60s to, to modern day. I think it's really fascinating um, and historians of the future will be able to use it as a, you know as evidence of how, how things have changed. But the MC, um, yeah. the MC in the Karate Kid in 1984 wears the same helmet, that same jacket in the um, the tournament at the end. He's got that same sort of like jacket with the uh, yeah. Texan sort of the jacket. patches. Yeah, with the patches the at the patches, at the back. Yeah. It's exactly the same, and that was 1984. <laughs> so it's, wow. <laughs> the, Things that fashion doesn't change much in America. No. Yeah. <laughs> Miyagi Dojo Karate, and you've got that jacket on that. <laughs> That's a good spot, uh, Phil. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that film was so lame. Yeah, no. Uh, so, so, Kid, uh, yeah. There was no karate going on in it until I, the very end. I gave up. I gave up my notes there. I just, I just wrote one word at the end: the, the oil rig exclamation mark. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And then, and then Bond's planes orb. That's all I wrote at the end. Yeah. He jumped so, out playing his orb ball. So let, let's just pan back a bit to the whole oil rig sequence. Yes. Here. What so they was found, going on? So they found uh, an abandoned oil rig off the coast of California to film this whole thing. And there was meant to be lots of explosions and all the rest of it. Um, well, there was Bond, two explosions, I think. There were lots of explosions. Basically, they set all the explosive up and then they started going off randomly when they weren't supposed to. And a lot of what we see on camera, it just so happens that the cameraman that was on one of the helicopters just had started rolling and he just kept rolling. And so they had to intercut and play around with the footage to sort of get the explosions in the right sequence. But they started going off, apparently, I've heard, I've, as I've read, um, sooner than they were meant to. Um, but talking about his sort of Zorb thing, 
because Carolina's like, what's that thing? And I was like, oh my God, he's inside it. And he's sort of walking inside it on the water. So so that inflatable ball that he's walk, doing the sea walk on, it was a stuntman in there the whole time up until the very last bit. Yeah. So they, they then cut and then he then goes in there. So Connery goes in, they zip up the ball and then they have to inflate it which was very, very uncomfortable because basically where the air shoot was, was basically it was air shooting straight into the ball and hitting his butt. Um, and he was, they could hear him outside moaning and cursing and swearing. <laughs> he was not happy about it at all. The moment comes for them to unzip it and for Bond to make his appearance. And basically it's something to do with science, like the air that was inside and then they unzipped it and there was like a, a sort of, pop and a pull and it pulled his wig off and basically his wig was hanging on the zip on the front <laughs> and so they reset and they tried it again and they basically did take off to take off to take and his wig no it didn't matter what they did they glued it down they tried other methods of sticking it to his head his wig just kept flying off in different directions so it took them a long time to get the take without his wig flying off in some film's a shamble, isn't it? Really? <laughs> I mean, in between, in between takes, when Sean Connery was not required on set, he was on the golf course. He had a little racket going with um, him, one of the producers, uh, and a couple of the other, I don't know if it was a writer and one of the co-directs, second unit directors or something. But he was basically just playing rounds of golf. And by the time he finished filming... He was so good. He was basically at pro level. And he was just taking people's money off him. Um, what a for life fun. he's had, eh? What a life. Yeah. But, I mean, the whole thing, the whole Vegas thing and the access to, because they, they, you know, they had the access to the golf courses. They actually paid and had the contracts in place for those so that he could just go and play in between. The whole thing was sort of built around keeping him happy. You know, much shorter shooting days, much shorter shooting schedule altogether. Um, just, yeah, just all sort of built around Connery and just, you know, making sure that he wasn't going to walk off in a huff. Um, so it's crazy. And by this time, the the, the relationship with Harry um, Saltzman was really strained. Like Sean Connery specified, he did not want Harry on set. He was banned from set. There was one day when Harry, because he liked being on set, obviously, because these films were his passion, and uh, he turned up on set for one of the Las Vegas night shoots, and Harry Saltzman sort of went up to Connery's trailer where Connery was inside. Um, I think he was playing poker or something with, with some of the other lot, and Harry Saltzman knocks on the door, opens it, and everybody sort of goes quiet because it's like, shit, what is he doing? Yeah, really awkward, right? It's like, what's he doing here? So Connery just got up. He doesn't say anything. He gets up, goes to the trailer door, grabs Harry Saltzman's cheeks and kisses him on the forehead like the Godfather. And then Saltzman basically looks at him, goes red face, walks off, doesn't go back to set ever again. Wow. And then Connery just sits down and carries on. Like what a ball! I mean, you could look at it in one of two ways: either what a wanker, or you could say what a baller move. Like seriously. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the, all this was going on. But anyway, I I thought you'd like that story about the toupee and the uh, the zorb or whatever it was. Yeah. It's around oh, this sorry. time when he, they're all, we're on the rig that 
Tiffany Chase decides to kind of come across as a bit more, um, you know, stupid. Yeah, and she was a bit more sort of, oh, I'm now one of um, Lofelds. I'm now almost like I'm part of Spectre or something, and I'm now become yeah. one of those girls rather than sort of having her own agenda, her own free will to want to sort of deal in diamonds. Well, I think she still does have her own free will because she's basically pretending, isn't she? Because she's she's there to help Bond, which well, she shows help. later on when he gets the... Ca- well, her intent is to help, John. Yeah. Give her some credit. <laughs> I've changed the tape. That's the wrong tape, you twit. <laughs> yeah. I that was very I mean, generous of him to call her that, to be honest. It was kind of... I wanted to find it charming, but I just sort of groaned because I was like, you did all this hard work at the beginning of the film to create what we thought was going to be another strong female character, and you just put it all in the bin. And the bit where, you know, the base is stormed, the CIA attack it, and then his henchmen come out and start shooting everywhere, and he gets in his little submarine to escape. And then uh, she picks up a submachine gun, and Bond says, shoot, shoot, shoot them. And then she sort of points it at them. And as she's firing, she can't control it. And she basically just keeps going back, back, back under the power of this gun. And then she ends up going off the side of the railings, presumably into the sea. Um, and I just thought it was absolutely ridiculous. I was like, my God, like, how could you make this any more? It just seems like a parody of everything that's gone on before by this stage. It was crazy. Um, but yeah, that that end sort of sequence on the Orwell, and then and then Bond, John, what did you think of um, Blofeld being picked up in the crane and then literally just being swung just around back? Comedy with him, sort of him, sort of you know, like sort of bl- blistering and blustering and sort of oh, what's going on? No, put me down and just parody. It was like it was just <sighs> you just get out, wouldn't you? You'd open the door and jump out, not let yourself be. Smash into walls and things. Yeah, it's meant to be an arch villain. It's meant to be like the the leader of this big, you know, underground group, and he's just like. Yeah, but the tape was, yeah. but the wrong tape was put in, so the sequence was still running to blow up Washington. But yeah, the what had what thwarted the plan was the fact that the whole thing blew up. Is that what? Was, yeah. is that what basically we are led to believe? I think so. Yeah. Well, no, I think she. Did she manage to swap the tape back again? Because I know I she tries she to, but then they stop her. Well, she she's seen to be filling with it later on, and Blofeld goes, "Oh, right, you're you're not you're not the the dim bimbo I thought you were. You know, you're actually involved in this." Um, but it's not very made very clear, is it? It's just more mm. weak writing, really, isn't it? To be honest, it's not made clear at all. Um, but yeah. then Bond brings in the brings in the you know his backup with all the um, CIA helicopters and things, and it all just goes. Explosions and well, three explosions that are misfilmed and uh, like yeah. turrets and guns and just oh my god! Well, the final one is where because he, he's swinging Blofeld in his little submarine around yeah. and then he smashes Blofeld into the control center and that's the one that causes the final explosion apparently that blows the entire thing up. But Blofeld's and, not dead, is he? Well, Blofeld is meant to be dead. So from what I've read of interviews with the writers yeah that the intention was that blofeld is dead now that's it he's done right but and then it cuts all of a sudden but we don't really get that resolution because then all of a sudden it cuts to a cruise ship with streamers and stuff and um 
uh, Tiffany and, and Bond are there sort of waving goodbye to the CIA guys. And then yep. they're sort of going off on, I presume, a little vacation or something together. Um, but then as it moves off, we get our two favourite assassins. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> very creepily just peering out of the below decks cabins there, <laughs> looking like one of them... Uh, is it what's what's a what's the what's it Bruce Glover? Bruce yeah. Glover looks like Jigsaw from the Saw movies in this <laughs> in this shot, doesn't he? <laughs> they are my favourite thing about this film. Those two, I have to say, <laughs> the comic relief, the Jar Jar Binks of Bond. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you, you you've just got this comedic scene at the end with the with the exploding um, pudding and 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 getting the wine wrong you know and and sort of um tiffany fumbling about behind but apparently this saves saves bond's life because she if she hadn't fumbled about he wouldn't realize the bomb was in the pudding it's just it's just like it's <laughs> pantomime again isn't it people being it, it, burnt with kebabs and thrown off railings and well, it's oh, so it, but it's quite inconsistent because they're they so it's knock on the door room service <laughs> and they, there's all this sort of grand spread for them you know, and Bond's like, we didn't order anything. And it's like, you know, blah, 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 blah. I need the best for, you know, whatever. And then he's serving him the wine. And it's almost reminiscent of, I don't know, you thought it was going to be as intelligent as that scene on the train in um, from Russia with Love, you know, yeah. with the whole white wine, red wine business. And um, there is that very clever little sort of, you know, um, I'd have preferred a claret if we were going to be served that. And he's like, oh, our wine cellar is low stocked on clarets. And then he's like, well, uh, blah, 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 blah. Wine is actually a claret, you idiot. And, you know, I've smelt that aftershave before. And the last time I smelt it, I smelt a rat. And you're like, okay, fine. But then it just turns into comedy again because yeah. he somehow manages to, like, the other one comes over with the kebabs, doesn't he? But then they set fire to him but, while, but they, while the other one's trying to garrote. But they used wine. But they used wine to do it. There wouldn't have been nearly enough alcohol it's in not the wine enough, is it? to set him yeah. on fire. It's crazy. Brand, you need brandy no. for yeah, that, don't you? Need, really? Yeah, or rum. Yeah. Yeah. So what they did is they wrapped the actor. Um, they wrapped the actor's wrists Putter in snow. asbestos. Yeah. And set fire to him, and then they cut to switch to well, you know when he completely goes up in flames. Yes. Yeah. Um, they switched to the stuntman, um, but what happened was that they set fire to him sooner than they were supposed to, so then he was burning longer than he was supposed to, <laughs> this film and part of his wrists weren't covered, <laughs> so his wrists started burning. But because he was trying not to ruin the tape, because apparently they only had one shot at it, he kept his mouth shut until he went over the side of the water, and then as he hit the water... Once they called cut, he then said, can someone get me some help because my wrists have burnt? And he, he really, really got seriously oh, injured. Um, absolutely freaking mental. And then the funniest bit, like Carolina and I, we burst out laughing so much that we had to rewind it to get the catchphrase or whatever it was that Connery said afterwards, after he'd, he'd gone overboard. So when he puts... Uh, Vin or whatever his name's tails between his legs and then ties the bomb to him and then throws him over and he hits or he just explodes before he hits the water and again it's another terrible special effect it's the same but explosion we, as a helicopter from the beginning of the film basically basically yeah, yeah. we wet ourselves laughing so much because it was just ridiculous and 
you know, I guess it's for that that I kind of will remember this film with some level of fondness because whilst it was terrible in so many ways, it was, looking back on it, it did provide more laughs than any previous Bond before it. It passed the six-laugh test, this film, actually. Yeah. It actually means it's actually a comedy. It's a comedy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I now want to watch Casino Royale, the one with Peter Sellers, and see if that's funnier than this. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, John, you've talked about this. Phil, how did you find this, this very last sequence in the film? I mean, I, I kind of wish I didn't see Austin Powers first. Because it did kind of, it did resonate with the whole sort of, who throws a shoe? Honestly, you know, <laughs> that really hurt. You know, I just, I just thought, you know, I really wish I didn't see Austin Powers first. I mean, it was ridiculous. But I mean, look, we've established this was for an American audience. They made a truckload of money out of this film. They did. It made an absolutely insane amount of money for the quality of the film that it was. And it just shows the kind of the level that Americans were looking at. And it's a shame because in 70, the following year, we had The Godfather, we had French Connection. We had some fantastic films that were released just afterwards. Um, The Exorcist. And, you know, it's probably the best film of all time. And this is what they were watching for entertainment in between all of those great films. Deliverance, another film's released the following year. So, I mean, this was just kind of where the entertainment level was for the masses of Americans that existed in 71. So let's not sort of... Let's remember the audience that it was meant for, let's say. Yeah. So, um, which brings us neatly on to our rating and review. Um, so, staying with Phil, where does this rank uh, in the ones that we've seen so far? Because this is now film number seven. And uh, dare I ask, what, what do you give it out of ten? Well, I'm going to take the positives first of all. The soundtrack is fantastic. And the music, incidental music in this film, is fantastic. The cars are great in this film. I also love the Mustang. I went to a car show a few years ago and I got to sit in one of these Mustangs, similar to the one that was in the film, and they are beautiful. So let's look at the positives. Um, those were the only things that come to mind. They tried to cast someone that was like Jane Fonda, but wasn't, which was also something that was, um, I think, important for the time. But the story went all over the place. So for the three positive things that were in the film, the soundtrack, the cars, the, the, the main soundtrack, the incidental music, the cars, and some of the uh, car sequences with the car going horizontally, I'm going to give it three out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give Phil's rating like an eight out of ten. <laughs> My God. Um, John. Well, here's how I'm going to work my maths out, right? Okay, so <laughs> the word diamond or diamonds is said a total of 40 times in this film if you include Shirley Bassey singing the word. So divide that by 10, that's 4 out of 10. And I'll give it an extra mark because I laugh so many times. I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. <laughs> okay, that's how I'm going to rate this film. I think that's being generous, 5 out of 10. I think, I think it's being generous. I'm trying to be positive I think here. it's being generous. 
I mean, the fact that they were, I mean, no, five out of ten. I'm going to call it five out of ten, just being generous. Because it was, yeah. it did make me laugh. Um, it made me angry. I mean, it was a roller coaster of emotions, really, for me. So five out of ten. Thing is, the thing is, I do think talking longer about this this film than any other. But I think that there is room for Bond to get worse than this. I haven't seen a lot of the other films, Um, but I suspect that there are going to be some Bond films that are worse than this, which is why I've given it three. I think. um, I mean, again, like you, up until the Brosnan era, I haven't seen these films properly. Okay, so. I get the feeling that we've got to wait a, quite a while to get one worse than this because I don't remember any of the Roger Moore ones being that bad, but then I only remember them from five-year-old memories. So, yeah, I'm very, very excited for the next phase. Yeah, me too. But, um, but yeah, but you know, let's see. Let's see. Maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised. I know by the time we get to... Um, die another day we definitely will have a film that is on par with this or slightly below it but um positives positive okay so the soundtrack uh shirley bassey and the theme song although now when you look at it in the context of a phallic object yeah basically a dick um it completely changes the meaning that song and i've had that song going through my head for four weeks now feeling like a superhero and now i feel well I would then I, then I seriously don't <laughs> um, recommend Little Red Corvette. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we'll have a Prince discussion separately. Um, so soundtrack. I, I kind of like the shift in tone, sort of ushering in the new sort of 70s era with some of the sort of outfits and so on and the, the kind of, um, you know, the big American cars and stuff because there was a lot more of that from memory in the Roger Moore era, or at least some of it. Um, maybe some of the humour because it kind of got us ready for the Roger Moore era. Um, um, like I'm really struggling here. Um, but yeah, but then you know the the neggy stuff for me. Blofeld was terrible in this. Um, I don't like the way the script went. I you know I think fair enough they wanted to try and find something a bit more exciting than the normal formula. But do you know what sometimes you're going to watch a Bond film, something around the normal structure and formula is what you want. It's a bit like why you go to your your favourite restaurant. You very rarely order anything outside of your three favourite things that they do. Um, So, damn Cubby Broccoli and his dreams about his friends. Um, So, I'm on a par with John. I give it a 5 out of 10. Um, Like, literally middle of the road. Uh, it's definitely for the complete. I'm glad I've seen it for the completest in me, but if I never see it again, I wouldn't be bothered at all. I would rather see on Her Majesty's Secret yeah. Service again than this. I've started to regret me paying eight quid to watch it last night, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad yeah. I just bought all of them in one go because then I can yeah. apportion, you know, like I would pay 20 quid for Casino Royale and then it notches this down to maybe I paid 5p. That's how I'll rationalise it. Um, so, yeah. So, disappointing. The aggregate score on Rotten Tomatoes is 63%. So... That shows there know. are some real howlers out there. It's really funny, though, but if you listen to the lads over at 00, uh, Really 007, great podcast. I totally recommend it, anyone who's listening. 
Um, you'll probably stop listening to this one after you listen to that one. Um, but you know, some of some of the guys, there are there is an audience for this film out there who absolutely love it, and there are even some people who for whom this is their favourite Bond film of all time, um, and they love it for the humour and for the change in tone, and they also love it just because it was Sean Connery's last appearance in the official series of films. So um, there you go. I mean, that's, I guess, the nice thing. We talk about this on Play Paul's Turn. We're all different, and we all have different tastes and so on, and, you know, that's what makes movies so great at the end of the day. Rotten Tomatoes give uh, Diamonds Are Forever... In the top 27, like ranking all 27 film, Bond films, it comes in at 18th out of 27. What? What What nine are worse than this? I bet that probably a couple of Roger Moore ones, right? Don't tell us. Let's not. Don't tell us. Don't tell us. No. Keep that list, though, John, because what we'll do is yeah, we'll compare it. it to our... To our, to our um, I don't I'm, agree I'm going to try it. and put together like yeah. a tailoring talk Bondathon consensus chart where I sort of aggregate what we rate them and then I'll put them into some sort of order and then we'll see if the tailoring talk ranking matches up with the Rotten Tomatoes. That'll be quite interesting. I've got two and a half years or whatever to work out how the formula works. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm quite confident about it at the moment. Um, so, yeah, there we go. Um, live and let die next. Nice. I am so effing excited Ooh. like to be starting the Roger Moore era as a fully grown adult. That is questionable. Um, as a physically fully grown adult, um, <laughs> um, to be able to watch these films properly for the first time in my entire life. John? Well, these are my films. Roger Moore was my bond, so I'm very excited indeed. Yeah. Phil? My rating's yeah. going to go way up. My my mm-hmm. my boss is saying that Live and Let Die is his favourite film. So, um, actually, oh really? Yeah. So uh, I am also looking forward to this one. Yeah, I mean we've got some of the best villains in Bond history, I think, coming up. You know, some of the ones that you just will remember for the rest of your life if you're younger, and if you're older, you'll just remember with so much fondness. So looking forward to Grace Jones. <laughs> my favourite character yeah. in the film. I, again, I've never, I've not seen that film. Probably, I've seen little <gasps> flashes of Christopher <laughs> on a blimp or something. And oh, you're in for a treat. I've not really, yeah, not seen it. So, so it's great for me because this is like fresh eyes and everything. Yeah. It's brilliant. So, yeah, um, guys, thank you so so much. Um, I'm sorry it was such a disappointment, but hopefully we've had fun again. <laughs> <laughs> well we have dissected we've certainly podcast, dissected so. this one haven't we yeah oh we really yeah. have yeah um but yeah no thank you thanks both of you um and look for, i really really i am looking forward to live and let die now um i've actually seen the extras from the live and let die itunes thing and i've seen some of the archive a little bit of the archive footage i tried not to look at anything that was going to spoil the movie um but I, th- there's also John, if you get time on the iTunes version, they they um, there's a little. It's introduced by Michael um, uh, Michael. Oh God, what's his name? Barbara Brooks. Michael McIntyre. No, not Michael McIntyre. The comedian. <laughs> no. Cubby's son-in-law. 
Cubby's son-in-law introduces, who is the modern-day right. producer, uh, introduces um, some archive footage of Roger Moore in a sketch show. And I found it very funny and very charming. And it's from 1964. And it, the sketch is basically a secret agent goes on holiday. And the secret agent is in Fleming's James Bond, 007. Oh. So Roger Moore did play 007 um, nearly 10 years before he actually properly paid, played the role in Live and Let Die. So you want to have a look at that. It's very charming. I found it quite funny, uh, but it's very, very charming. And yes, um, Yafet Koto is in that film. It is him, isn't it? Yeah, no, no, I no. So. no, no, he's in Live and Let Die. I know he's in Live and Let Die, but I want to know if that was him in, in this. So I need to look that up. Um, brilliant. Right. Thank you, guys. We'll wrap that up. Um, thank you so much, all of you, uh, for putting up. If you've made it this far, write in. Well done. Because you really do deserve a freaking prize. Um, but we really appreciate you joining us. Um, we do genuinely love making these 007-themed episodes and... We do love to get your feedback after each one. Um, so you can catch Tailoring Talk on Instagram at Tailoring Talk Podcast. And uh, you can also email in uh, tailoringtalkpodcast at gmail.com. You can support the show by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Roberto Rivilla. And you can also help us out by reviewing us and giving us a rating if your podcast listening vessel allows it. We will be back next month to review Live and Let Die. Meantime, take care, and I'll see you on the next episode of Tailoring Talk. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I'm for making this far, Bobby, with your 4am start.